This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you from the top of the world, fabulous 1340 KAB, the sounds of the surf from Antonio Bay. My name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. It's Weather Phenomena Week here on Pod Cemetery with 1980's The Fog and 2007's The Mist. Don't get them confused. <laughs> Before we talk about the movies, though, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Horror trivia. Why don't you give me what you got? The Thing... Yes. Arrives at Outpost 31 Uh in Antarctica, Uh disguised as what animal? A dog. What kind of dog? Oh, a, um, is it a, uh, what do you call them? The kind that you really like. (laughs) What's the name of them? I was going to say, this is my favorite dog. You should know. My mind is blank. Wow. (coughs) It's only the dog I've been telling you I've been wanting for 10 years. Yeah, I just can't think of any. Like, I literally can't think of a single dog breed right now. (laughs) Not even one. What the fuck is the name of that dog breed? Wow. Like, seriously, guys, I've this is a dog I have wanted my entire right, life. Right, no, no, it has nothing to do with that. I literally can't think of, okay, I, I can think of German Shepherd. That's one dog breed. I can't think of any dog breeds other than German Shepherd right now. It's not, has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with my mind just being, it was not in the right place for this question. I don't know why. A husky. <laughs> Thank you. A husky. Okay. Kelsey. Yes. John Carpenter had an uncredited role in The Fog (laughs) as which character? Oh, as the custodian of the church. That is correct. His name is Bennett. But yes, that is correct. I would have had no idea that was him until you told me. (laughs) We just happened to talk about that. So the character's name Bennett is apparently named after... Someone that John Carpenter went to school with. That person's name is Bennett Tramer. <laughs> Which Tramer being Ben Tramer from Halloween. The guy so, that, that she liked. Yes. So I just thought that that was really interesting. Who dies in the sequel. He does, yeah. Poor Ben Tramer. <laughs> All right. Well, the first movie we're talking about actually is The Fog from 1980. Written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, this is the next movie that they made after their first, being Halloween. Still starring Jamie Lee Curtis, which I did not know going into this, and Janet Lee is in this as well. Yes. And Tom Atkins. Yeah. I, I didn't know Tom Atkins was in this, because I'd never seen this movie before. And so then I saw his name come up on the screen, and I'm like, Tom Atkins! <laughs> I was very excited. Mm-hmm. I'm also excited because in about a month, we're going to be seeing another movie with Tom Atkins in it. God. I'm so excited. I don't get why. 
Really don't. Directed by John Carpenter, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, Janet Lee, Tom Atkins, Adrian Barbeau, Hal Holbrook, and John Hausman. Kelsey, what is the fog about? A seaside town has a legend of a ghost ship. Yeah. That will come every hundred years to reap vengeance on the town. And we happen to see what happens on that day of a hundred years. Yeah. The fog rolls in and brings with it vengeance. Yes. <laughs> now, a few things about some of the stars of this movie. Adrian Barbeau was married to John Carpenter at the time. This Which is actually is that? She's the radio, radio show host. host. Yeah. This is her first actual in theaters movie that she ever did. Uh, she did a lot of like made for TV movies. She'd worked with Carpenter in the past and a lot of TV shows. She's actually the voice of the computer in The Thing. <laughs> Your move, King to Rook One. My move, Rook to Knight Six. Checkmate. Checkmate. <laughs> She plays a lot of computer voices in cartoons, TV shows, video games. Uh, we probably know her best as Catwoman from Batman the Animated Series. Have you told the police you found your cat burglar? But apparently Carpenter wrote this role specifically for her. As somebody who did a lot of voice acting, it was kind of a great role for her as the owner of a radio station and jazz music host. What's with all the jazz music on radios and horror movies? And specifically in bays. <laughs> in, at bays. In the Bay Area. The way the jazz. Funny. I mentioned that while we were watching the movie and Kelsey's like, I wrote that down. I said the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. Specifically, we're thinking of Play Misty for me. Yes. Jamie Lee Which Curtis. Which is funny. Misty. Oh, yeah. The fog. This is the fog, not the mist. <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis is in this movie, of course. Some people refer to her as the main character of the movie, but she is absolutely not. Uh, the makers of the movie actually consider Adrian Barbeau as the protagonist. But Jamie Lee Curtis is in this movie along with her mother, Janet Lee. We've talked about in the past, we did Psycho, we did Night of the Lepus, <laughs> and we tell a story about how Janet Lee didn't want her kids <laughs> on the set of that movie. Uh, but in any case, this is really the first movie that they worked on together, and they didn't really work on it together. They were in all of two scenes together, and they practically don't interact at all. Mm -hmm. Jamie Lee Curtis says, it's very easy to put us together as a mother-daughter, as a package deal. My mom and I don't really work together in this film. Which I must tell you, I prefer it because it's very easy to put us together as a mother-daughter and make it a package deal in quite a few films. And we've been offered little parts here and there, mother and daughter. I would much rather work with her maybe in a film, but I'd rather save that one time that we worked together for a really terrific project. But unfortunately, after this, Janet Lee was in very few other things. They did work together one more time in... Halloween H2O, where Janet Lee had a very small role. Mm -hmm. And that was not long before Janet Lee passed away. So they did get to work together one more time, but 
Jamie Lee Curtis was very wary of them being like, oh, they're a mother and daughter and they act. Let's put them together in a movie as mother and daughter. And they're absolutely not in this. They just so happen to be in the same movie together. Do you know why Janet Lee is in this movie? No. She went to John Carpenter after seeing Halloween, after seeing the premiere of Halloween that her daughter was in and really liked Halloween a lot and said, basically, I I love your movie and I would love to be in anything you make. And so he put her in The Fog, his very next movie. So I thought that was pretty interesting. That's cool. We also have another character from Halloween. Yes, formerly Nancy Loomis, now Nancy Keys, plays Sandy, who is Janet Lee's assistant. Speed kills! <laughs> yes, she's one of Jamie Lee Curtis's friends in Halloween, which is pretty interesting. Obviously, Carpenter has people he likes to use. Yes. Right? Yeah, so. Kelsey, should people watch this movie? I'll say yes, I enjoyed it. I really Liked it. I liked it. I liked it a whole hell of a lot. And I'm kind of bummed I didn't see it before this. I wouldn't say it's as classic as Halloween. No. And there is definitely some cheese factor to it. But there's a lot of elements that I really like. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah. So you should definitely watch it. It's available to rent and rent only, actually, if you want to watch it streaming on Google Play and iTunes for about four bucks. So if you want to plock down a couple bucks it's definitely worth watching yeah yes there is a remake though be careful we hear it's absolutely awful (laughs) and we did not put the fog together with its remake nor the mist with its television show mainly because if there's an excuse not to watch the fog remake i'm gonna take it but also because this episode is a listener recommendation yes kelsey who recommended this Anthony. Anthony, thank you so much. What a great job putting these two things together. Yes. Basically, there's something in the weather phenomenon. <laughs> that's, that's... They both have that line. These. There's something in the fog. There's something in the mist. Yes. Yeah. So that's what kind of conjoins these together. It's horror where there's some really high humidity and... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can't see what dangers lurk inside of that. And it's a little supernatural. So thank you very much, Anthony, for recommending these. All of you should watch this movie, too. You can take our advice or leave it. But when we get back, we will talk about 1980s The Fog. Something is moving in the fog. Who's there? Something not quite human. Who is that? Halloween, John Carpenter created a night of absolute fear. Now, he has conjured an evil so intense, not even the dawn can drive it away. The Fog, a study in unrelenting terror. Rated R. Is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream? Asks Edgar Allan Poe. Is that the quote? That's the quote. Apparently, Carpenter cites Poe's writing. Carpenter and Deborah Hill. Let's be clear. Carpenter and Deborah Hill were a a team. They worked on this together. Carpenter gets a lot of solo credit for his stuff. There's a lot of things he worked with Deborah Hill on, Halloween being one of them. So she deserves way more credit than she gets. She does produce these movies with him, though. So she has a lot of impact on the final outcome of these things. And so want to make sure we recognize her. But they note Edgar Allan Poe and Lovecraft, actually, as inspirations for their writing. Carpenter 
said that he wanted to do something a little bit different from Halloween. He wanted to do another horror movie, but that is more about, as Deborah Hill puts it, like the evil of humanity, like pure evil in humans. Whereas this one is the supernatural, right? It's ghosts. It's vengeance. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure Michael Myers is pretty supernatural. Well, we find that out in the subsequent films. In the end of the original. Somebody gets shot and then he gets up and Shot and thrown out of a window. No, he falls over a balcony. After being. One story down. After having his eye gouged out. Not a fatal wound. (laughs) I think it's totally believable. I do not. Is it. Are you serious? Is it, what's the term I'm looking for? Unlikely. Maybe. Improbable. Right, but do we fill movies with the probable? No, we fill movies with the incredible. It it does not or reach the level. could you say the supernatural? Yes, it does not reach the level of supernatural just because somebody survived some wounds and falling out of a second story window or balcony. Like, come on. People actually do that. People get stabbed in the eye. People get shot in the head and survive. Did you hear? Oh, my God. Did you hear? There is a woman who got shot in the head by her boyfriend and didn't even know for a month. (laughs) No. She was in an argument in a car and then her car window shattered. And she thought something had hit the window and the glass had hit her in the face and that's what was causing her to bleed. They didn't take her to a hospital because it's the boyfriend who did it. But she starts complaining of like these migraines and stuff like that. And she goes to the hospital and the doctor's like, you have a bullet lodged in the back of your skull. And then they ended up arresting the boyfriend and putting him in jail. I've never heard this story. It just happened. The guy was just sentenced. But how did she not see the gun? I don't know. I guess she figured maybe she'd be dead if she actually got shot in the head. But shit happens, man. Why are we talking about Halloween? (laughs) (laughs) The point is that specifically, like I said, Deborah Hill says Halloween is about evil in a human. The fog is about the supernatural vengeance in ghosts. They took a trip together to Stonehenge. And they saw a fog bank coming in. And... John Carpenter asked her, what do you suppose is in that fog? (laughs) And that's what kind of gave them the idea to write this next one. Mm -hmm. And it all kind of has a lot of inspiration, like we say, from Edgar Allan Poe, from H.P. Lovecraft. But also uh, Carpenter cites EC Comics, Tales from the Crypt, that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. for the idea of the vengeful rotting corpse that would appear in those stories. And then there is the real story from the 17 or 1800s of a ship bringing gold to shore and using bonfires to on the beach to mark where they need to bring it in and then a town hijacking that ship and stealing that gold which is very similar to the story that happens in in this one here mhm so we open on an old captain an old ship captain this is John Hausman He's he's obviously, like, the head of, like, I don't know, a bunch of kids out on a camp out, I guess. And he's telling them a ghost stories. And he tells them the story of 
the ship that was... I don't really understand it, but from what I got, they used a bonfire to trick them into not going where the lighthouse was. They did that so that they could steal the gold from their ship. Yeah. So all those people died on the ship, and then that gold was used to fund the town. We do know that there is uh, a ship that sank in the fog. Uh, And it was done on purpose by the townsfolk. Yeah. An interesting facet of this is that they felt justified in doing so because... They were pirates. They were lepers. Oh, they were lepers. Yeah. So Blake, who's this wealthy man, he wanted to establish a leper colony and (laughs) nearby. And he had all the gold on the ship to do that, to establish that colony. And as opposed to letting them do that, the town (laughs) sank the ship with them in it and took the gold for themselves and used it to found the town. There's a little bit of contradiction in that because we find out later that the the priest at the time stole the gold back so i thought they used the gold to found the town i thought that's what the town was founded on and that's why it was a big problem that we're celebrating the the founders of this town when it was founded on the blood of these lepers but it wasn't the priest took the money and they couldn't use it so there's a little bit of confusion there for me but it's really Nuts story. (laughs) Anyway. That scene was added in after the fact. The first edit was only like 70 minutes long. And they're like, well, it's not long enough. And it's not scary enough. And so they went back and they refilmed a few things, including that scene, which was done on a soundstage, just really dark to make it look like it was the beach at night. And a lot of close-ups when... The ghosts kill the crew of that ship in the very beginning. They added in a lot of clips to make it explicit what was happening. And so basically anything you see close up and in detail is probably one of these pickup shots to add more intensity to the movie and add more length to the movie. And apparently originally it was them boarding the ship and that's kind of it. And then they refilmed all these close-up shots to make it clear that, no, they're murdering these people. Okay. So then our next scene is at the church, where, again, we see John Carpenter as the custodian. This is a weird scene. We meet the father, who's drunk on sacramental wine, and Carpenter asks him, hey, can I get paid? Which then garners a response of, Actually, come in two hours later tomorrow, which I think is supposed to mean, oh, fuck, I really can't pay you. So actually, you're going to work less tomorrow because I can't pay you. Yeah, that's what I think the implication is. But so I guess we're supposed to be focusing in on the fact that there isn't a lot of money in the town, which is interesting because the whole thing is that they killed this this ship for the gold. But this is my point. (laughs) The gold is hidden. Nobody has the gold. But in any case, the father... Hal Holbrook, who you'll recognize from a lot of things, I immediately, when I think of him, I mean, yes, I know he was in West Wing. I think I recommend, recognize him most from The Firm, but it's it's funny because Janet Lee talks about how scary Hal Holbrook was in this movie, just like being in it with him. There's a moment where she's in the church looking for him, and then he just kind of comes in from off screen, 
and she jumps and she's like, Jesus. Father Malone? Jesus. Oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Williams. Which is funny because she's in a church and he's a priest. But that was apparently very real. And he actually did scare her. And she really liked working with him in this movie. So I thought that was <laughs> fun to mention. But something happens to Hal Holbrook. And stuff is happening all over town. Yeah, it's interesting how they let you know that. So they'll go through the whole scene of what happens to a person. And then they will go back in time to show you, hey, at that exact same moment, this thing happened to this person. They'll do that like three times. Yeah. And I admit it took me a, a little bit to understand that, oh, this is all happening at the same time. Yeah. And I, I, I did write it down somehow how I figured it out. But I kind of, it was interesting because it's like, it took me a minute, but I wasn't mad when I realized it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I liked the structure of this film in that way where there's just shit going on in different places to different people at the same time. And it's really interesting. And then they kind of intersect in certain ways, mm -hmm. which is also interesting. Yeah. Back in 1980, in a horror movie, this isn't how it was done. I, right. I, I thought that was really neat, actually. I agree. But so, so, a stone falls out of the wall. Yeah. Just happens to be the stone that was covering up the journal. Yeah. Of his grandfather? Great-grandfather? I don't know. Something like that, yeah. And it tells the story of what they did. And we see it, and I don't think they expected you to be able to pause it and see it in high definition, <laughs> but apparently one of the prop guys was really bitter about his job, <sighs> and so written on one of the pages is this stuff about how he has a college education and he's doing shit like writing in these fucking movie props, and then he writes, it's time to bring in the words guide or the big tits, tattoos, and shaved beavers. Like, just written all this stuff. He's, it's just a rant. He needed to fill the book with what looked like text, and he had to make it up. So he just, stream of consciousness, wrote in this book. And you can see that on the screen, which but my, I think is really funny. My problem with that is, like, like I wonder if it really was an accident, because... You're telling me that John Carpenter didn't notice that. Mm -hmm. And that he just put it in his movie. It's on screen for like a second. I guess. And a lot of times stuff like that isn't caught in the edit. I guess. So at the same time, in another part of town, all the phones start ringing. Yeah, this is what they describe as the poltergeist moment. Where everything is just like happening. Yes, in another area, everything is shaking, like in an earthquake. Uh-huh. In another area, all the car horns are going off. Uh-huh, and the lights are flashing. Mm-hmm. And we get to meet some of our characters during this time. We meet Loomis. Yeah, her car alarm is one of the alarms going off. We meet Janet Lee. Her phone goes off. Yeah. And at the same time, we see a hitchhiker. And my first note is... Jesus Christ, who would hitchhike in the middle of the night? And also, who would pick up a hitchhiker in the middle of the night? Then you find out that it's a woman hitchhiking, and you're uh -huh. like, oh my God. And then you find out it's Jamie Lee Curtis, and you're like, Jamie Lee Curtis, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, I, I feel like such a mom. It's just like, don't you dare. <laughs> she asks him if he's weird, and he goes, oh yeah, I'm really weird. And she's like, good. The last I guy with... I hitchhiked was so painfully normal. Yeah. Listen, I never hitchhiked before. I just really want to be careful. Can I ask you something? Sure. Are you weird? Yes, I am. 
Yes, I am weird. You are weird. Yes. You're weird, thank God. <laughs> the last one I had was so normal, it was disgusting. Pick me up in Santa Barbara. By the time we got to Carmel, he wanted to marry me. Oh, yeah. I thought you never hitchhiked before. Not before last week. You're my... 13th row. Oh, great. Weird and unlucky. And it's just like, I can't... It bothers me that they show that. Well, it was a time when before hitchhiking was really like super taboo. Obviously, it was risky, but like in the 60s and 70s, like that was done a lot. Nowadays, the the idea of hitchhiking or picking up a hitchhiker is insanity. <laughs> but back then, it was a thing. It was a concept. And yeah, it's late. It's 1980. So it's a little late for that. But it still happened. Also, he's drinking and driving and then offers her his drink. Yeah. Well, that's also another thing that was really common. You know, you wouldn't, hopefully you wouldn't drive drunk, but the concept of having a beer while you were driving was not unheard of. I don't think there was a federal law against it at the time. I think that was like in the 80, 86 or something like that, after I was even born. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I knew that. You drinking- can't drive inebriated. Right? If you're driving recklessly or whatever, you can get arrested for that. But just having an open container wasn't against the the law. And at the same time, we meet our radio show host. Played by Adrian Barbeau. Her name is Stevie Wayne. I'm Stevie Wayne. And if you don't have anything to do right now, I'll be here playing music all through the witching hour. And, and we get to hear her... Do, do her, her radio program. It's pretty good. Yeah. She does a good job. She is apparently mimicking somebody specific, a famous DJ from the 60s known as the Nightbird. It was a, a woman DJ. Her, her name was Allison Steele. And apparently that's who she's mimicking in this movie. You are master of all highways and the universe nestles in your soul. So come, fly with me. Allison Steele, the Nightbird at WNEWFM. In stereo. And she has this funny thing going on with the local weatherman where like they've oh, never yeah. they've never met each other, but like she has to talk to him so that she can give the weather out through the radio. Yeah. And he so is cute. so into her. <laughs> and she she's divorced. She has a kid. Yeah. And she's nice to him, but she's she's not interested in him. It's it's a cute thing that they have going on and he tells her you know fog's coming in and she's like the weatherman must be crazy he's saying there's gonna be rain and fog but i can't i don't see a cloud in the sky yeah okay important to note fog is not something we can detect on our radars it's just a conceit you're going to have to accept to watch this movie you might not have even known that so are you saying that we have no way of knowing when fog is gonna roll in we might aside be from to- Almanacs and all that? Yeah, like barometric pressure, like that sort of thing. But you can't see a fog bank moving on radar. Not even today. So fog is just... Yeah. I mean, we can see indicators of it. Like I say, barometric pressure and stuff like that. But nothing that... Oh, wow, look at this big giant fog bank moving across. I'm picking up on my radar. No, which <laughs> happens in this movie. But no, it doesn't work that way. Just a little side thing. If that bothered you, get over it. Meanwhile, on a ship, we meet some drunken sailors. Yeah, one of whom is Janet Lee's husband. Yeah, in in the movie. In the movie, yeah. Mm-hmm. And 
they're listening to her, and they're very drunk. Oh boy, would I like to meet her. Oh, I did meet her in the grocery store. And yes, you would like to meet her. <laughs> and we, we haven't mentioned this is the night before their 100th birthday, the town's 100th birthday. The centennial. So all the old timers, so these guys in the ship, and for some reason also the radio show host, <laughs> all seem very nervous about a fog bank coming in. And we get the impression that the story that was told to us at the very beginning from the old-timer captain, maybe they all know this legend. Yeah. And it's something that they've been passing down, and so, like... Well, so they know oh, the no. legend. The legend they know is of the ship in the fog and this ghost ship. They know that legend. What they don't know is that how closely tied that is to the founding of their town and how the the founders who they revere are responsible for the willful deaths of these vengeful ghosts. They don't know that part yet. But yes, this is a this is a story that's told. You know, we we got that from that very first scene with John Hausman. People know this story. It's not a surprise to anybody. And so but but because of that like they all seem a little alarmed at this fog bank. Not totally. Like, none of them are willing to just be like, oh, my God, ghosts are coming. Yeah. But, like, they're a little uneased by it. And we get this shot, and it's real bad. We're supposed to get the impression that the fog has a mind of its own. They do say, like, but how could fog come in against the wind? Yeah. And so to to show that, there's a, there's a scene where the fog is supposed to be coming in to this area. But in fact, what they did was they had it come out of it and then they played it in reverse. And it's yeah, they so do that a obvious. Few times. But there's other times that it might not be as obvious. But yeah, this one, it's obvious that they're just playing this. In like reverse. I turned to Chris without realizing it. I was like, why did they do that? <laughs> <laughs> why did they play that in reverse? And I'm like, oh, well, it's supposed to look like it's supernaturally going into the ship, into the engine compartment and and killing the engine. But yeah, it looks a little funky. It looks, and it also doesn't make sense because it's coming in through a closed hole, like it's seeping in through the cracks. Yeah, the logic of what they can get in and what they can't get in makes is a little no weird. sense. Yeah, are they vampires? Do they have to be invited in? That's what I said. <laughs> because if a door is closed, they cannot get in. <laughs> they just can't. They just knock. Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. They do some really cool things with the fog, though. There's some really bad shots. Like, I think the ones of the shots on the coast when the fog is really green, it doesn't look that great. But the shots in the, when the fog starts rolling in over the town and you're looking at, like, a main street or whatever and it's moving and it's moving between the buildings and stuff. So here's how they did that. It's kind of nuts. It's thinking in creative ways and using old school technologies. So... They took a photograph that they wanted the fog to roll through of the town, right? And that's what you see in the movie. They take this photograph. And then they build a scale model of what you see in that shot of the town and do everything in black. So it's just an outline of all the buildings and everything like that. And then they run the fog through that model. And videotape that. And so what all, all the uh, 
all the film catches, because everything else is black, all the film catches is the fog moving around objects, which are in the shape of the buildings and the pictures. And so then they overlay that over that photograph of the street and all those buildings, and then it looks like the fog's moving around the buildings. But how did they get the fog to move the way they wanted it to? Oh, they just blew it in. There were a lot of problems with controlling the fog. I bet there were. Yeah, but there were certain. They, they used a lot of simple fog machines and blowers and like uh, some spritzers and things like that. They used all sorts of really basic technology. But that concept of filming something over something black and then overlaying that on top of the actual footage that you have in order to get you like superimpose those two. Images, this might sound really familiar because it's the exact same concept that we talked about in the Phantom Carriage back in 1921. That's what I was thinking. It's the same concept, just a little bit more complex. So I think that's pretty interesting. It's new ways of applying old technology in order to get the effect that they want. I thought that effect worked really well because I was thinking at the time, like, yeah, how did they get? Like, it's obvious that the that the fog is filmed at, at a greater scale. Right, it looks bigger than it actually is. But how did they get it to move around the buildings? Well, that's how they did it. I think it's really interesting. Cool. So the boat. So these drunkards on the boat gets taken over by the fog, and there's a knock at the door. <laughs> like I said, they can't open doors, <laughs> and they open it. I guess. Well, they're, they're worried about what's going on. They're not exactly sure what's happening. And they so they go outside onto the deck and then they get murdered pretty brutally. Yeah, we see swords. We see fish hooks. We see a guy get stabbed through the head several yeah, times. Mm-hmm. These are all those pickup shots that I mentioned. Yeah, so lots of gruesome deaths here. <laughs> and remember how we told you about how... Jamie Lee Curtis is in the car with this dude, Tom Atkins, that she's never met before, and she's drinking with him in the middle of the night. Yeah, they end up having sex. Yep. (laughs) I forget there's a line in there that's like, oh, she wants to fuck him. Yeah, there, because he, yeah, he says something and she responds very Very positively. Flirtatiously. Uh Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, oh, all right then. (laughs) Yeah, the next scene we see they've had sex. And they don't even know each other's names. Like, she finds out that his name is Nick, and he finds out that her name is Elizabeth after they've had sex. His full name is Nick Castle, which is the name of the guy who played the original Michael Myers. So, just thought that was a little bit of fun trivia for you. Nice. And, you know, it seems like it's just kind of, we find out that she comes from a rich family. She's never been allowed to do anything she wanted to. And so she kind of, she's, this is like her, her summer of love, her her yeah. expedition uh-huh. in life. And so her plan is to sell her drawings as she goes, and she wants to make her way to Vancouver for some reason. And he's so- like, hey, can I, can I buy one of these? And she's like, no, you can have it for free. <laughs> <laughs> And then they get a creepy knock at the door. In the middle of the night? But Tom Atkins 
I don't know about this, and and takes his time answering the door, and it's yes. a good thing he does, because apparently these ghosts don't have a lot of time to wait around. They have from 12 to 1. So they're just like, fuck that noise, and they left. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we, we find out that leading up to the centennial, the ghosts can manifest themselves via this fog from, from 12 midnight to 1 in the morning. And as he's opening the door, it becomes one in the morning. So by the time he gets it open, the fog is rolling out and he's safe. He rang the doorbell, by the way. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. He didn't just knock. This old... This he old rang the le- doorbell. This old leper pirate ghost. Carrying a fish hook. Carrying a... It's not a fish hook. It's... um. I forget what the name of it is. It's the same thing from I Know What You Did oh, Last ice, Summer. No, it just allows you to, to pick things up like bales of hay or ice blocks or things like that. It's just a handheld hook that you use to grab onto things. But in any case, that guy from the 1800s <laughs> knows how to use a doorbell. It's just, it's interesting. It's he knows odd. what a car is. <laughs> how to set off car alarms. <laughs> so... Because it's hit one o'clock, yeah, and all of a sudden, he's gone. Next day, we see the radio show host's son running around fishing, and he finds a plank of wood. No, he finds a gold coin. Oh, that's right. That must be part of the legend. I don't remember. Well, he finds a gold coin, and when he goes down the rocks of the shore to get to it, when he gets there, it's a plank of wood. That says, like, Jane? It says Dane. Dane. Do you know what that means? It's a reference to the name of the boat. Oh, okay. We're not there yet. We won't be there till we get to the trivia section. Okay. <laughs> so, as this boy is running on along the beach with this plank of wood that he has found, we get some music. And I specifically wrote, Exorcist Ripoff! Yes. To which Chris said... It's John Carpenter! <laughs> this is very clearly John Carpenter soundtrack... And yes, it sounds like The Exorcist. Which is a bummer because I, yes, I've always recognized that The Exorcist and Halloween are similar. Well, okay. Here's Halloween. Here's The Exorcist. Here's the fog. Yeah. (laughs) But he's he's also more like synthy than the exorcist is, which is more, more piano-y. But this felt a little bit more tubular bells. Sure. Yeah. uh Uh-huh. I, I feel you. I fucking love John Carpenter's music. I absolutely love it. She owns the radio station and she runs it. And so she is always there from when the station comes on the air until it goes off the air at one o'clock at night. And they run radio station promos in the meantime, just a tape that's just promos for the radio station, stingers and interstitials and stuff like that. She sends him to go stay with this other older woman who watches him during the day while she's at the radio station. So Nick finds out with Elizabeth that one of his ships never came back and he's 
very concerned. Everyone else is like, oh, they probably just got drunk. And he's like, no, we get drunk all the time. Everyone comes back. Yeah. So he is very upset and nervous. As is Janet Lee, because Because her husband husband is one of those people. But Mm -hmm. she is the town event planner. And she is planning this huge 100th birthday celebration. And she does not have time to stop and be concerned about this. Yeah, because that night is going to be the 100th anniversary. And at the same time, she also feels, I need to keep myself busy so that I don't just break down about this. Yeah. So meanwhile, her assistant, the chick from Halloween, is trying to tell her, no, you should probably relax. She's like, I can't. Yeah. And I won't. Yeah. Also, we find out that Jamie Lee Curtis has decided to stay. Yeah, she wants to stick around and have an adventure here. Yeah. She basically says, because he asks her, I thought you had to get to Vancouver. And she's like, not yet. We'll see. Like, her thing is like, we'll see how this plan pans out. Yeah. If this doesn't work out, okay, I'll keep going to Vancouver. But otherwise, I'm going to have fun while I'm here. Yeah. Which... God, it would be so nice to, right? to just... <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> just leave and just do whatever the fuck you want. But it's like, I, I don't know. I couldn't... It's like all those TV shows in the 70s, like The Incredible Hulk and stuff like that, where they have an existence just drifting from town to town, having adventures and being able to survive. It's nuts. I mean, if you can get by doing odd jobs, but, like, I don't know if I could. I don't right. have that expansive of, of knowledge. And then also, it's like, what do you do when you can't find a job? And, like, what do you do for money? But it's like, back then, she was a chick. Wouldn't have been that hard. I mean, yeah. I guess you could do it now, but, like, you'd be too afraid to be died. Yeah. I mean, you'd be killed. So, you know, differences. Yep. Differences in time periods. Anyway... They find out all these different people are getting together and they find out that, oh, my dog wouldn't stop barking and growling at midnight. The car alarms went off for no reason. And the chick, the other chick from Halloween says, God, 100 years of this town sitting here doing nothing one night and everything falls apart. Yeah. Because of the fog. Mm-hmm. We see some fun interactions between Janet Lee and the girl from Halloween, Loomis. She's like, you know, you're the only person I know that can turn yes, ma'am, into screw you. Yes. And to which she says, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Better get the estimates ready for the council meeting next month. Yes, ma'am. Sandy, you're the only person I know who can make yes, ma'am sound like screw you. Yes, ma'am. And this is when we get the fun scene in the church because Janet Lee wants to make sure that the father is going to give a benediction at the 100-year celebration, and they are very much aware that he is an alcoholic, so they know, we got to go over there, and we got to make sure that he's ready to do this. Yeah. And when they get there, that's when we get the fun scene of him walking out from the darkness and her going like, Jesus! Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus! I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's very funny. Yeah, but he reveals to them in this moment what he found out from the journal, his grandfather's journal that he found. And that's why he's so concerned, because they're celebrating murderers. Yes. And And Janet Lee just kind of doesn't want to hear it. Well, it's more like, it's tonight. (laughs) I I can't stop this and explain to everyone why. This is happening. (laughs) So we'll hold on to this information for now. (laughs) We'll talk about it later. At the same time, Nick is investigating where his ship has gone. I think they find it, but there's nobody on it. So, okay, yeah, they go out on a boat. They charter a boat. They go out there. They do find the boat. And originally, 
they he falls out of there's a body that falls out of the cabinet. In this one, she gets scared because like a cabinet door opens or something falls and she's like, ah, and screams, and then the body falls on top of her. That's what actually ends up in the final version, what with the reshoots. Nice. Yeah. So they find a body that's completely waterlogged, like it had been underwater for months. Yes. And this is when Nick tells a story of, you know, I don't believe in much, but I did hear a story once that scared me. And it came from my grandfather. He found a gold doubloon from 1867. And then it disappeared. This is when Jamie Lee Curtis is like, maybe I should head on to Vancouver. And that's when she finds the dead yeah. body. So they bring this body back into town and they have it examined by the coroner. This is another added moment. The coroner is is talking to Nick outside and she's still in the room with the dead body. And then the dead body gets up and starts walking towards her. <laughs> And it ultimately collapses. So the body's walking on its own. It has been underwater for months, but only been missing for a day. The eyes are all fucked up. I can't remember what happened to them. Something strange is happening with these people. Meanwhile, Adrian Barbeau back at the radio station. She goes in. She sets the log down on top of the recorder that's playing these promos before she gets the actual radio station up and running. The sounds of the surf from Antonio Bay, KAB, 1340. And then it catches fire, and it says, do you remember what it says? I thought it started dripping with water. I think it does, and then it catches fire. Oh, I don't know. Six must die. This is a reference we find out later to the six people who are responsible for the deaths of the leper colonists. And the goal of these ghosts is to kill their descendants or just six random people. We don't necessarily know. Although we do know of one actual direct descendant, and that's the priest. Yes. Hal Holbrook. So if six must die, we have three dead now. We have the three men on that boat have died. So that's half of the six. She puts it out with an extinguisher and it just says Dane again. Oh, that's really weird. So, a couple of things. We skipped the fact that the, the mother has asked her son to stay inside. Yeah. Which I thought he wasn't going to do. Right. And then he does. Yeah. So that was interesting. He talks. They talk on the phone. Also, I should mention that it's around this time when Jamie Lee Curtis was in there with the dead body. I wrote down, she looks an awful like lot like she did in Prom Night. Yeah. In this scene, turns out it was literally the same year. It yeah. was the same year it came out. So I have a feeling that uh, parts of this were filmed at the same time. Yeah. She well, looks a lot like she does in Prom Night. Like we say, that, that shot of the corpse getting up and coming after her was a pickup at the end. Ah. When they were already done editing. Because like there's something uh, about her hair. There's yeah. something about the way her hair is done that I was like, Prom Night? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they got all the way through, they had a rough cut of the film. At 70 minutes long, and that's after that where they had very little time to do these pickups. So I don't know that this is the case, but it's very likely that she was already doing prom night. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, they know they all know that the fog is coming again. And she says I, on the radio, she says, I hope nobody else gets lost in the fog because they assume that's what happened to the people the night before. Yeah. 
And then she talks to the weatherman and he says, oh, the fog's coming in on me. Yeah. Well, before this happens, actually, they need to break the news to Janet Lee that her husband is dead. And they do so in a bar in the middle of while she's planning everything. And she's obviously devastated, but she has a responsibility to the town. And she has to get through this day. Nick calls up the radio station because they're talking about the ship. And he's like, I have information about the ship. And she's they, so these two now connect. There's something weird going on. Fog is heading against the wind. These guys were waterlogged when they were only gone for a day. You know, like all this stuff. But now Nick and Stevie, the the DJ, have a connection. And if she finds out anything about the fog, she's going to communicate it on her radio show and they'll be listening. So we know the weatherman's going to die. Yeah, poor weatherman. And she tells him not to answer the door, but... He does anyway, and he's mm-hmm. like, wow, whoever's fucking with me is gonna get what for. Mm-hmm. But no, he ends up dying. Yeah, and she sad. hears it. And so she's absolutely terrified of this fog, because from where she is at the lighthouse, which is where the radio station broadcasts from, she can see the fog rolling into the town. And she saw it hit the, the station, and now she sees it going towards... And that's why she refuses to leave. Because she has his vantage point on it. Even though she desperately wants to make sure her son is okay, she instead stays because she feels that responsibility to the rest of the people to alert them where the fog is coming. Yeah. So nobody can call anybody because the fog is smart enough to know to cut the phone lines. Yeah. We talked about how they know what a doorbell is and car alarms, and now they know how to cut phone lines too. Yeah. All right. So she has to broadcast everything over the radio station now. Meanwhile... It's really cute. The lady that's watching the kid is like, this is scary. Like, because all the fog's coming in. The kid's like, I think it's kind of neat. And I'm like, yeah, that's my kind of kid. But she's like, close all the windows, lock all the doors. The problem is, is in Stevie's room, the the door, the window is open in her room. And and there is a knock at the door. Yeah. And Mrs. Kabritz or Korobitz or whatever her name is tells the kid, hey, stay back. And he's like, but I want to see who it is. And she's just like, no. Get the fuck back. Guard your crew. She opens the door and doesn't come back in. And the poor kid's left there. He's like, Mrs. Uh-huh. Kobritz? Mrs. Kobritz? Whatever her name is. Kobritz. Kobritz or something like Mrs. that. Mrs. Yeah. Kobritz? Uh-huh. Mrs. Kobritz? But no answer comes. That's four. Mm-hmm. They're Meanwhile, listening over the radio. Yeah, she is just... Begging, someone save my son. Uh-huh. It has come to this street. That's where my son is. Please help him. Someone listen to me. My son is trapped. 887 White Beach Lane. My son is trapped by the fog. Andy, get out of the house. Run. So that's when Nick and Elizabeth head over there to try and save the kid. Now, it's during this scene of chaos. Somehow, one of the windows gets broken. And that's when we see the ghost put his hand through to unlock the door. Right. So what you're telling me is... They're corporeal. They just can't open locks now. Yeah. Is your reasoning. And you're telling me that all these doors that they've been coming to, including the weatherman's door inside a building... Right, yeah. ...was locked. Was locked, yeah. Uh-huh. It's... These are just things you're going to have to deal with. <laughs> They're not movie breaking but they they do kind of make you go 
something happens to where Jamie Lee Curtis has to start a car, and just like in Halloween 2, she can't get it to start. Just but it's like not in Halloween 1, she can't find the keys. The keys! The keys! That's that's to the door, I think, actually. Yes, to the house door. Yeah. But, but yeah, it, in she any can't case, get the car to start just like she can't in Halloween 2. Because the tire gets caught in a pothole. And then she needs to put it in reverse to actually get out of there as the fog is is coming up towards them. Meanwhile, the centennial celebration is happening. It's going on. And they're revealing this new statue celebrating the centennial. Janet Lee wants to stick around till the very end, till everyone gets through. And they're like, no, go home. Like, you do not need to be here for every moment. It's fine. As soon as these people all get to see the statue, it's over. Just go home. But she doesn't. They end up going to the church for some reason. Uh, well, that's the only safe place. So they are also listening to the radio and they hear all this stuff happen, right? So everyone's kind of meeting at the church. Which caused the ending to feel a little rawhead Rexy to me. Right, because she's talking about the stained glass windows and them getting smashed. And yeah, we have Nick and Elizabeth in their truck with Stevie's son. And we have Janet Lee and her assistant all going to the church where Hal Holbrook is. The fog is also making its way towards the lighthouse, which causes the radio show host to climb to the top. Yes. So they're all hiding and they're trying to protect themselves from these ghosts that are trying to smash their way in. Father Malone, Hal Holbrook, is like, I know what's going on. The only way to end it is to give them back their gold. Yeah, they're doing this as vengeance for, you know, taking their gold. Like, dog, you are so wrong. (laughs) He is so incredibly wrong. What good is gold to ghosts? Mm -hmm. And wouldn't they be more upset that they were murdered? (laughs) But so he gets out the gold cross because he thinks that will stop them. Yeah, because he tells the story about how his grandfather or great-grandfather stole the gold back from the townsfolk that they got from this this leper boat, to put it back into the church, basically, as opposed to letting them actually profit off of it. And they, he forged this golden cross. So he goes and he brings the cross out to Blake, Blake who has these red eyes. Well, I mean, what he's trying to do is he's trying to sacrifice himself, too. Yeah. He's like, okay, well, I give myself up with the gold. And Blake destroys the cross, right? Isn't that what he does? Like, he I super, have no idea. He superheats the cross, and then all the ghosts and the fog disappear. Just in time to save Stevie on the roof of the lighthouse. Yes. As well. And it seems like what Malone did, Father Malone did, worked. Gave them back their gold. But it didn't. No, it didn't. He He's standing there and he's asking, why not me, Blake? Why not me? Why not six, Blake? <sighs> why not me? And as if to answer, <laughs> Blake shows back up again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And kills Father Malone. He chops yes. his head off. Because there there were six. He needed six. And we had the three men on the boat, Miss Cobritz, and the weatherman. That's five. And Malone's the last one. He's the last living descendant from the town uh, founders. So, yeah. No, they were coming back for you, man. They, they left. I don't know why they left and then came back. 
If they took the gold and then they're like, okay, we're going to get this back to the ship and then we'll come back and kill you or what? I don't know what the explanation is there, but I think it is very obvious. The gold was not enough to satiate them. (laughs) And that's basically the end of the movie. Yeah. Lightning round, Kelsey. I think I got everything, but I feel like I didn't do a good enough job of explaining how much fun this movie is. It's so much fun. It's so much fun, but I feel like my notes are all really shitty and like I didn't explain why I enjoyed it as much as I did. Well, let's go through some of my extra notes. Okay. And, and, see, and see what I have. Like This is the first time that I'm pretty disappointed with my note-taking skills. <laughs> John Hausman, who does the monologue in the very beginning, there's a great clip of him where he is trying to remember his line and he's like, ah, shit. Sorry. (laughs) Shit. I'm sorry. His speech is only two and a half minutes long. And he talks about how it's 11.55, five minutes to midnight, just enough time to get this this story in. And then at the end of his story, it becomes 12 o'clock. Well, that's just a time fuck up. It's not actually five minutes long. I have here, I love the distinct shadows being cast everywhere. Uh, Specifically, I'm talking about the priest's office when I wrote this down is when they're in Father Malone's office and Bennett's there, there are these very distinct shadows being cast in interesting angles everywhere. And it's it's visually unique and arresting, and it creates a sort of tension with what could that shadow be of? What could it be hiding? Like, that kind of stuff is... is it's fun to think about. They spent a lot of money on advertising for this movie, and they put fog machines in... Movie theaters, kind of like William Castle's uh, Emergo or Emergo or whatever it is with the skeleton coming out for House on Haunted Hill. I didn't remember that was what it was called. Or Illusiono. Yeah. For 13 Ghosts. Yeah. With the glasses. But this is in the lobby, you know, but they, they did something fun like that. Fun. Blake is played by a man named Rob Botton. Does that sound familiar to you at all? No. Rob Botton is the guy who did the effects in The Thing. Ah. You know, he, and he had that. He have a breakdown? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because of The Thing. <laughs> Speaking of the concept where people don't really interact with each other all that much in this movie, they just kind of brush over each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adrian Barbeau only has two scenes in the entire movie where she actually directly interacts with somebody on screen. There's a scene with her son. And then there's the scene on top of the lighthouse with the ghosts. Every other scene, she's by herself. She's only communicating to people through her radio or her phone. And that's it. Interesting. But we do still get moments where she's talking on the phone to Nick. Yes. You know, this guy she doesn't even know. And who ends up saving her kid. (laughs) Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis are a couple in this movie. They are both in Halloween. And they never meet in Halloween. Because Tom Atkins is in the only Halloween movie. How much older is Tom Atkins than J.B. Lee Curtis, by the way? Because I know him from fucking Night of the Creeps, where he's like mm-hmm. an old man. So in 1980, he was 45 years old. How old was Jamie? In 1980, she was 22. Gross. <laughs> gross that was very popular at the time it's not happening so much anymore in movies but the whole like men can be any age and women all have to be young it's starting to go the way of the dodo thankfully yeah but or it's reversing the other way around because i mean look jamie lee curtis tom atkins is awesome yeah he is he's awesome he's really awesome (laughs) but 
And Jamie Lee Curtis right now is like 61 or something like that. I would. <laughs> I absolutely love Jamie Lee Curtis. I really, really do. She seems like a really cool chick. Yeah, she just seems really good. I, I remember the first time I found out she was a big video game fan. I had no idea. She would go, her and Christopher Guest would like go to conventions and stuff dressed up in cosplay with masks and stuff. Like she did one where she was dressed up as Vega from Street Fighter because she loves Street Fighter. But Vega has a mask, so nobody would know it's her. Like she just does it because she loves it. Like that's fucking awesome. I love Jamie Lee Curtis. She's totally cool. Uh, Adrian Barbeau and Tom Atkins were also in Escape from New York, uh, which is another Carpenter movie. Never seen it. They never meet in that movie either. When they made the poster, they weren't going to make Elizabeth the main character. And she's really not. She kind of is along for the ride for Nick, who is a primary protagonist. But it's Jamie Lee Curtis. Exactly. So when they cast Jamie Lee Curtis, the producers, kind of against the wishes of one of the producers, Deborah Hill, it wasn't her idea to do this. Their original idea is that Adrian Barbeau is the real heroine of the movie. You know, she sacrifices being able to protect her son. She guides everyone with what they need to do, that kind of stuff. There are a few kind of protagonisty characters in this though it's a an ensemble but they they thought of adrian barbeau as the main character but because halloween was so popular just prior to this and what was it 78 they're like okay well we got to put her on the poster and so that's why she's on that poster holding back who we assume is blake one of the ghosts reaching in through the door and she's like screaming and it's like the fog because remember they can't come through that door right yeah uh-huh so i just thought that that was Kind of interesting. You hear that a lot in Hollywood where they just do the thing that's the most popular, whether it's the right decision to do it or not. And I don't think it hurt the movie at all, but it's just interesting to think about that. Mm-hmm. So, Kelsey, hmm. what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? 67. 76. Oh. A well-crafted return to horror for genre giant John Carpenter. The fog rolls in and wraps viewers in suitably slow-building chills. Metacritic of 55. So 76 Rotten Tomatoes, 55 Metacritic. Overrated or underrated? I'm going to say it's pretty much spot on. Yeah. I would go with 76. Yeah. I I agree. I think 76 is a really good score for this one. I was kind of bummed that I had never seen this movie before. I enjoyed it. I, you know, I don't think it's quite as good as some of the other 80s horror flicks that we've seen. But I thought it was pretty good. I would definitely recommend it. And I enjoyed it. And yeah, happy with it. Yeah, I think the fact that it's a fun movie that does fun things. And there's different characters of different ages and different statuses and different personalities that all kind of drive this story together is a lot of fun. And it's not normally what you get in an ensemble cast in a horror movie. And the fact that everyone but Hal Holbrook in that ensemble cast survives is also not something you normally get. You normally get a bunch of people all in the same group, all together that get picked off one by one. Mm -hmm. And that's not what this is. Yeah. I like that a lot. I think it's really interesting. Me too. So that is 1980's The Fog. Before we get into our next movie, Kelsey, horror trivia. What is the name of the camp in the first installment of Friday the 13th? Uh, Crystal Lake. That's correct. Boom. These questions are pretty easy. Yeah. Kelsey, what is the name of Blake's sunken ship? 
The Dane? Close. I don't know. What if I told you it's the same name as one of the characters in the movie? The name of the ship is the Elizabeth Dane. Which is Jamie Lee Curtis's character's name is Elizabeth. Uh-huh. So why did you say we weren't going to talk about that until the trivia part? Well, because I didn't want to give you the Oh, because you didn't want me to know. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you meant that it had significance. No. Okay. I just think it's a really cool name. And it's used again. Basically, if you Google Elizabeth Dane, you're you're going to get results not for the fog, but for Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. <laughs> It's a it's a mission storyline in that game where you go on a ship called the Elizabeth Dane. Ah. So, yeah, I just thought that, that was interesting. Mm. All right, Kelsey, next up is 2007's The Mist, based on the novella by Stephen King and written and directed by Frank Darabont. This is his third Stephen King adaptation, but his first Stephen King horror adaptation. Prior to this, he did... The Green Mile, and Shawshank Redemption, which are two fantastic King adaptations. Mm-hmm. It stars Thomas Jane, Marsha Gay Harden, Laurie Holden, Andre Brower, Toby Jones, William Sadler, and Sam Witwer. What is The Mist about? The Mist is about a supernatural mist that brings terror to a small town where everyone has congregated inside the local what is essentially their Walmart uh, because they are stacking up on supplies because they live in New England and they're used to storms breaking down the town and that's kind of what's happening. They've had this huge storm and they're like, "Uh uh-oh, better stock up on supplies just in case. But while they're in the store, the mist rolls in. Now, this movie isn't available to rent anywhere. Digitally, that is. You can buy it for about 10 to $15 pretty much anywhere. Which is funny because the fog, you can only rent. Yes, it was very frustrating. And yes, like I said before, there is a series, and no, we don't know if it's any good. Should people watch this movie, Kelsey? No. Yes. No. Kelsey and I differ on this. Yeah, we do. We differ I think a lot. you should. I think there's a lot to really enjoy about this movie. I did not enjoy it. <laughs> she really didn't. It was like torture for her. If you want to find out why, stick around. (laughs) You can take our advice or leave it. Uh, It'll be hard not to do both. (laughs) When we get back, we will talk about 2007's The Mist. Mom, Dad, you gotta come see. It came without warning. Something in the mist! Shut the door! A mystery without answers. It's not supernatural. Nobody else heard that sound? What sound? From the Master of Terror, Stephen King. Tie this around your waist to let us know you got at least 300 feet. Discover the secret. This other world came spilling through to ours. Of what lies behind. Daddy, there are things out there. I'm going to take you home. The Mist, directed by Frank Darabont. Rated R. Kelsey, can you walk us through the plot of The Mist? Sure. <laughs> you seem so excited. I... I don't know how you liked this movie. I liked the movie. I think the acting is so bad. The acting's okay. Uh, So we open on Thomas Jane. Who's in Dreamcatchers, by the way. (laughs) Yes. Yes, he was. (laughs) And he is a painter, I guess. And he's painting 
Movie posters. Oh, he's he's supposed to be painting movie posters. Yes. Okay, because I was like, are we just pretending like he came up with the thing? Like, no. seriously? <laughs> so we see a few things in his gallery. There's the poster for the thing. There's one he's working on currently, which gets the most screen time. The Dark Tower. It's for the Dark Tower. It's of the gunslinger. And there's also a poster in there for Pan's Labyrinth. And he's listening to jazz music, yes. which is a, is a Stephen King thing, <laughs> but it's also been a theme through our movies. Yes, uh-huh. That's what he does. And, and then in, in the middle of the night, a tree falls through his studio. There's a thunderstorm, yeah. which I guess wherever they live, they can get real bad. So they went down into their storm cellar. It's in New England. Okay. Yeah. And one of their trees goes straight through... Their house and destroys all his paintings. Mm -hmm. Their neighbor's tree, their neighbor being Andre Brower, who doesn't live there. He just like vacations there, I guess. He's a lawyer. His dead tree that they've been trying to get him to dig up for years now falls on their boathouse, which causes strife between the two. And they had apparently a year ago, they had something that put them in court together, but they don't ever specify they never what, say what it, it was. Is. Well, it, apparently Andre Brower tried to sue him. And 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 he won. And he won. Not Andre Brower, but Thomas Jane. Thomas Jane. Yes. But they don't ever tell you what it was about. And it, I mean, they're just using it as an excuse for why these people don't like each other. Yeah. And th this this dude is litigant, and he's argumentative, and he really doesn't like this guy, even though. Jane plays this, like, really fucking well and, like, defuses any potential conflict right here. And they end up being, like, he says, uh, you know what, I'm sorry, I see what happened to your, he has, like, a, a Mercedes-Benz or a BMW or something like that. That was Cherry. and That's another King thing. <laughs> That's definitely a King thing. I'm sorry, man. I mean it. Sincerely. That's nice of you to say. Oh, it's, that car was cherry. I, I hate to see it like that. A tree fell on it, and so now he's without a car. And so he's like, well, do you want to go to the store with me? We can go shopping together to get supplies. And they agree. And it seems like their relationship might be fine. They might be banding together to solve their problems together. What you really need to take out of this is the fact that the reason that he's going to the store is because they need to patch up the house. Meaning that the house is open to the elements, which is not a good thing in this story. Right. And for whatever reason, he takes his son with him. His son wanted to come. And leaves the wife at home. Yeah. Okay. So they're driving to the store. On the way, they notice all these uh, military vehicles. And they're like, that's odd. But they know that there's some weird project, there's some project military Arrowhead. project going up, uh, going on up in the mountains. So there was a scripted <laughs> version that they never actually shot. Darabont says he's thankful it would have been a very expensive deleted scene, is the way he <laughs> describes it, that sets all this up in this military base. What they're doing is they're trying to open portals to other dimensions. Now, in the... Kingoverse, or whatever you want to call it, there are portals used everywhere. It's very big in the Dark Tower series. It's how all these different worlds get connected. And so it does have an implication in the larger Kingoverse, but they really try to downplay it in this movie. There's maybe one scene where it becomes any sort of important, but they didn't want to waste so much time in the beginning just showing 
the accident that caused the portal to open up and all these monsters to come out. It's a very Stranger Things type yeah, thing. Very much so. Also, the kid they picked is way too old for the part that he is playing. He acts, the way they treat him and the way he like acts. he's a five-year-old. He's supposed to be a little kid. Yeah. And this kid is not that young. He's got to be, what, like 10? Yeah. Yeah. And he is not, like, at one point he tells, he's like, oh, I'll go to the payphone since my cell phone isn't working for some reason. And I'll call home. I forget why he has to, but he's like. Oh, he makes him hold Andre, Andre Brower's yeah, hand. Yeah, he's like, uh -huh. hold his hand. And I'm like, whoa, yeah. that kid is way beyond hand-holding. I was <laughs> watching something, I can't remember what it was, and they mentioned how it, Thomas Jane just keeps handing his kid off to other people. Yes. Like, throughout the movie, he's constantly handing his kid off to other people. Yes. Takes a village, man. <laughs> we are introduced to several characters, like, a boom, 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 of characters. So let's talk about the main actors in this movie, and basically everyone we're going to meet, we're meeting right here, right now. Yes. Uh, so as soon we, as they walk through the store, hey, you, hey, yeah. you, hey, you. So there's Thomas Jane. Obviously, he's our main character, David Drayton. We meet Andre Brower, obviously. He's Brent Norton. He's Thomas Jane's neighbor. Because everybody just happens to be converging at this store all at the same exact time. Yeah, well, because there was the storm and then everyone's getting supplies <laughs> and they're making a run on the store. It's bound to happen. <laughs> There's also uh, Lori Holden, who is Andrea in Andrea, whatever her name is, in The Walking Dead. There's a lot of people from The Walking Dead in this because the director Darabont is responsible for adapting The Walking Dead from the comic book into the TV show. She is absolutely gorgeous. I love her. She's fantastic. Toby Jones, who is British. And does a very admirable job of keeping his American accent, especially when he yells. There are a lot of moments where it's like most people would slip out of their fake accent when they're doing that. And he does a great job of it, I think. But I, whenever I see him, I think of either Armin Zola from the Marvel movies or... Hail Hydra. Yes. Or uh, he's he's Tinker in Taylor Soldier Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yes, that's isn't what I think in, of. Isn't he in Harry Potter? Or is he one of the few British actors that's not in Harry Potter? No, I'm sure he is. <laughs> Most British actors made it into the he's series. He's the co-host from The Hunger Games. Yes, he is. Yeah. He's a fantastic actor. I like him a lot. He has a moment later on. There's uh, William Sadler, who is a mechanic. And I know him. The old dude? The hick? No. Oh. Well, I don't know what you consider old. I mean, he is old, but, like, he's not, like, I wouldn't call him the old He's dude. the one that sends the kid to his death. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he's old. <laughs> right, but he's not, like, that's not his defining characteristic. He's not an ancient man or anything. He's the bad guy from Die Hard 2. He's one of the prisoners in Shawshank Redemption, which that's is another Darabont movie. Him. He's Shawshank. also the Grim Reaper from Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. That's him? Yes. And he is in the new Bill and Ted, by the way. That's him? Yes. Makeup can completely change a person. <laughs> There's uh, Jeffrey DeMunn, who plays the guy that who's the first person to come in and is like, this guy was taken away by something in the mist. And he's like bleeding from the something nose. Something in the mist! Yes. 
Uh, he is also in the Green Mile. Yeah, he's another officer, right? Yeah, and he's also in The Walking Dead as well. Yes, he is. You don't get to do that. You don't get to walk into somebody's life, make them think you care about them, and then just walk out. You don't get to do that. <laughs> I remember that speech. There's Sam Witwer, who plays Private Jessup. He is probably bigger as a voice actor than anything else. He's the voice of Darth Maul whenever you see him, except for in... The movie. The original movie he appears in. That's the guy from Shaun of the Dead. It is, yes. Uh, but he is the voice of him in everything else, including Solo. Spoilers for Solo. Ouch. Ouch. What? Why'd they do that? Oh, why didn't they give it to, uh, what's his face? Poor Peter Serafinowicz. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. Bummer. Yeah. Uh, he's also famously in Battlestar Galactica, the Battlestar Galactica reboot. <laughs> there's a there's a woman who's credited as woman with kids at home. That's Melissa McBride, who is the Carol from The Walking the Dead. The annoying one. Oh from my Walking god! Dead. So apparently, she gives this fucking speech where she guilt trips everyone, and it's like, bitch, you will die. Oh and yeah. They they liked her speech so much that they saved her, and she didn't die in the end. Some bullshit. It's it's bullshit because it's not a good story. It's not. The good story is that, yeah, no, we made the right decision. You should not have gone out there. Yeah. And so that's Melissa McBride, obviously famously Carol. I, I, I think movie, she's the reason why we stopped watching The Walking Dead. Oh, she was so annoying. But this is, I mean, right there, Chris, you're giving one of the major reasons for why I don't like this movie. It sets itself up to be like, oh, if you're a good person, then you're going to make it. No. Right. No, it doesn't. No. It doesn't. It absolutely but doesn't But then it do shows that. you again at the end. Oh, she was a good person. She went out for her kids right, and no. she survived. I agree. That is that is one of the worst decisions in the entire movie. They should not have done that. Because you're right. It kind of tears down. Or it, rather, it supports the idea that somehow, like you say, if you're a good person you survive, but the point of the movie is how good a person you are has zero effect Means on the outcome. Means nothing. Exactly. And finally, there's Marsha Gay Harden, who plays Mrs. Carmody. She's obviously in a lot of things. She's a famous actress, Marsha Gay Harden. <laughs> <laughs> and she plays the typical domineering... King uh, Nutto. God... Hides behind God to be an asshole type character, which is fine, except that she just goes way over the top. And it's just like, I don't, I'm not. There's that scene that people talk about is really great. Like, if I wanted a friend like you, I'd just squat down and shit one out. I tell you what, the day I need a friend like you, I'll just have myself a little squat and shit one out. Like, really? Somebody wrote that? Somebody wrote those words. I wonder if it's King or Darabont. I mean, like, she's a terrible human being, and it's like, I just have to listen to her be a terrible human being for a long time, and I have to watch these people become these mindless yeah. sheep. And n no, I do believe that. I do believe that people are mindless sheep, but unfortunately... <laughs> That doesn't make for a good movie. Right. I'm well, not the point interested of the movie, in this. The point of the movie is a very tired one. It is. The, the real monsters are humanity. Yes. Ugh. I don't need that. I'm super sick of that. Right. Totally. But that's not why I like the movie. I do not like Mrs. Carmody. I 
do not think she's a good character. I think she's kind of a cliched villain. She is. But I think she's an effective one. Here's the thing. We can we can take it all the way back to King's first book, Carrie, where we had a, a yes. domineering religious woman figure. But the great thing about her was that the only one who bowed down to her was her daughter. Nobody else. Everyone yeah, else in the town is like, fuck that bitch, you well, know? Well, that's why in this, it starts out that way too, where even Toby Jones, Ollie, was like, Hey, you all should know she's known around town as kind of the neighborhood kook. Like, don't take her seriously. And everyone's like, yeah, no, she's nuts. And everyone wants to hit her until finally Lori Holden's character, Amanda, actually does. And William Sadler's like, oh, that's great. You get to hit her, but I don't. Like, nobody likes her until she starts to be right. That's the interesting part. Is She is consistently and thoroughly right about things and that pisses me off but being right doesn't mean your interpretation is right that's the problem and people are blind to that and they're like oh yeah you believe her because you need an explanation and she said something she made a prediction and then it was true so everything she says and then she has was to be saved true. that part what part? Just infuriates me. When she didn't get stung? Mm-hmm. She's the only one who didn't freak out. I understand. It still infuriates me because... It supports her... It supports the theory. It's why people suddenly believe everything she has to say. And it's like... Oh, well, it's one of the reasons, yeah. It's like, hello, has a bee ever landed on you and not stung you? Yeah, uh-huh. Was it because you just let it live but its they're life? Not, they're not thinking of these things as bees. They're thinking of them as monsters that have come to hurt you, which is not what they are. They're animals is what they are. They're just beasts that we don't recognize, you know. So anyway, we're getting way ahead of ourselves, and that's totally fine. So uh, the mist rolls in and – Yes. <laughs> Something in the mist! Immediately, Miss Carmody is like, oh, this is the end of days. Uh, oh, this takes place in Castle Rock, by the way. Is it Castle Rock? They 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 show you. So at some point, there's a sign that says Castle Rock. Oh, interesting. I don't know if the original story did. Right. Or if they just put it there, because that's his thing. Well, apparently, King asked Darabont during the premiere, did you actually film this in Maine? But he didn't. Anyway, the, the town's... Civil defense siren goes off. You know, it's the loud. It's basically there's an emergency. This is when Dan comes in. There's something in the mist, like you say, and he's freaking out and nobody believes him. And then there's kind of an earthquake that shakes the whole place. Shit's kind of breaking down at the very beginning from word one. Thomas Jane goes into the back for some reason. I don't remember why. Do you? To see the generator. Yeah, but, like, it's something – oh, the, all the lights went out, mm-hmm. right? But it's really weird what the generator – this generator is actually working on because the lights are on in the back until he turns the generator off. There is a working I think generator. They have, I think they have the, uh, like, the solar lights. I think that's what they're using. No, it's – when they turn the generator off, all the lights in that room go out. Oh. Yeah, so I don't know what this generator has to do with the lights that are in there. But in any case, he goes back there to, to check things out. This is after – Carol 
does her whole, isn't anyone going to come with me? I've got to get my kids. Won't and somebody here see a lady home? No, bitch. Yes. No, I fucking won't. No, it's won't. awful. I don't know why everyone thought she did such an impressive job. It's I, not good. I, but, and she turns to Thomas it's Jane. Insanity. And she's it's, like, what about you? And he's like, I have my own kid to worry about. It's absolute insanity. It's, it's, I, hate, I wish they would take that part out. I wish she would have gotten killed right yeah, away when she left. She should have been. She should have. Some bull... Shit. And that's what I'm talking about. This movie is filled with bullshit. <laughs> but it's filled with awesome stuff, too. And that's why I like it. One of the, those things is coming up right now. What Thomas Jane finds out is that the generator is working, but all the smoke and everything that it would normally create is is still in the room. So whatever ventilation system takes that stuff outside is being backed up. And it's filling the room with smoke. And so there are other people who are here, William Sattler and his brother or his his other mechanic friend or whatever. Well, before anybody else shows up, it's Thomas Jane by himself at first. And this is important because he sees and hears a loud noise and something hits the wall yeah. and wants to get in. Uh-huh. And that's why he's like, we shouldn't go in there and we shouldn't fix this. And they're like... Uh, so they go down there and they're like, what sound? Because of course nothing's happening when they're there. And they're and that's when they make the decision. Somebody needs to go out and figure out what's backing this up. And he's like, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, something big is out there. This is a mistake. And the kid, I feel like we've seen the kid before. Yes, the kid is. Oh, it's the kid from Can't Hardly Wait. He's the one who steals everything. He's the one who steals Hardly everything. Yeah, and he's in American Pie. His name is Chris Owen. He's the one who, who tells everybody who had, he had sex, but in fact, he, he cried. <laughs> he's also the one who is standing on the roof of the building in Van Wilder. And Van Wilder talks him down, but he's not wearing any pants. <laughs> yes. So, so that kid is like, I'm not afraid. I'll go out there. I'll fix it because he's a teenager. Uh, and and I love, I do love that Thomas Jane, after it happens, is like he was a teenager. He was going to do it no matter what anybody said. He's supposed said. to be dumb. It's your job to protect him. You're yeah. the adult here. You're the one that was supposed to stop him from going. I mean, we didn't twist his arm. Yeah, he's a fucking kid. He's supposed to be stupid. What's your excuse, huh? So the other guy who we've been talking about, what's his name? William Sadler. William Sadler encourages the kid to go out there. He's going to work on the generator, uh-huh. and the kid's going to go out and fix ba- the, ventilation. the backup. Yeah. But unfortunately for him, he dies. So the they, they open up the rolling gate. Just a little bit. And they do this really, oh God, it's an incredible shot where the fog, which is what it is. It's not the mist, it's the fog. <laughs> it's really dense and it's right there and it just starts to like kind of, it doesn't come rushing in, but they're like little tendrils of smoke and stuff that are just kind of like licking at the room. And it's really neat the way it, how dense that fog is and it doesn't come into the room immediately. Apparently they did that by fucking with uh, the temperatures in between on either side of the door, which prevented, I guess it changed the pressures in the room and it prevented the mist from coming in. What is the difference between fog and mist? Is it just that fog is thicker? I would think that fog is thicker. Yeah, I think that's it. I don't, I don't know. We're not meteorologists or whatever. So, 
He's like, look, there's nothing. It's just a bunch of fog. And then, of course, there's this moment where he turns away from it and towards the camera. And then he gets grabbed by a tentacle. And this fucking tentacle is such a great design. I love the design of this tentacle because it's like a normal tentacle. But then it also opens up and it has all these spindly teeth on the outside. And then it has a mouth that lines the inside. And it... The gore in this movie is handled so fucking well. It's incredible. The way it just rips at their skin is awesome. And then let's just ruin it because it's god-awful CG. The CG is bad. The compositing (laughs) is bad. But the design is awesome. And the gore is awesome. Unfortunately, none of it looks real. Yeah. (laughs) You do have to kind of deal with that. But, I mean, it's a a movie from the aughts. But... They could have done it practically. No, I don't know that they could have. I think it would have looked like I think it would have looked like the Stranger Things maze from So you put some CG on it to to fix it right. up. No, I but agree. But the the effect itself should have been practical and then anything that kind of looked like eh that's when you put the CG in. That's what CG should be used for. Mhm. I agree. Yeah, I would say the biggest problem with the CG is that the lighting's not right, so it looks like those things aren't really there. <laughs> exactly because you know, they're lit differently than everything else in the room and there's hard edges to the outline of them so I, it's a problem with cg and unfortunately it's a problem that's not going away because every movie has cg and cg is that we're not spending enough money or time on it and so it's everything's just rushed out now because everything needs to have cg and now it all just looks bad so <laughs> It's o- it only looks good when you spend the time and the money on it and you pay your like artists Marvel. properly. There's some wonky stuff in Marvel stuff, too, but they do spend a lot of money and a lot of time on that stuff. Because they have to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this kid gets sucked into the mist and Thomas Jane manages to cut off one of the tentacles. And... William Sadler won't shut up about how sorry he is, and Thomas Jane is super fucking pissed, because this kid is dead now, when he didn't want him to even do this. And it should be said that before, when he's trying to stop this from happening, rather than take a step back and calmly try to talk to these people, he gets very, very angry. And at one point he says, are you guys being willfully dense? You guys are, well, you don't seem to understand. You're trying real hard not to. This is no ordinary mist, okay? You, you open that door and something gets in here. Like what? Well, like whatever made, made that noise I heard. Are you guys being willfully dense? Yeah. Which, which <laughs> I so get. Funny. I feel that. In, I feel that hard in my classroom. <laughs> yes. But you can't say that. The moment you say they're that, all down. you're gonna yeah. you're, they're gonna shut down. And you learn that as a teacher. Yeah. And that's why the guy becomes so gung ho. Like, no, we're doing this. Now. Yeah. Because no, I'm not gonna listen to you. Don't talk sissy down boy. to me. Yeah. Uh huh. Exactly. So we have. Ollie and I Toby do, Jones. I did enjoy Ollie's response where he was like, he, he says to them, they can't control what's going on. Yes. This is one of the few things that they can they can fix this. They know they can, so that's why they're so dead set on doing it. It's, it's interesting because Ollie constantly presents these ideas of these people are scared. They're doing this out of fear. Yeah. And it's pretty great. And it's even better when Ollie finally says, fuck this bitch. Yes. <laughs> because yeah, the we'll, entire we'll movie, he's trying to be so like 
I get what what's going on here. I know why these people yeah. are reacting that mm-hmm. way, and we need to calm down. The only way this is going to get fixed is if we calm down, and then it's finally great. And he's just like, no, fuck this. Yeah. And, and he's he, the best part. He's awesome. He's, he's the best part of the movie. He's the one who gets the axe in the first place, and, and he's really fucking resourceful. He turns on the generator again so they can lower the gate. Like, he's doing all this really cool stuff and action hero-y stuff in this movie, and he's just this sort of small, mousy guy. They call guy. him the bag boy at one point, which is No, they so didn't call him awful. the bag boy. No, they called the kid the bag boy. Are you sure? I'm positive, Because yes. I remember, I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, I don't know. I was like, why are you so offended? No, they were talking about the kid. In any case, they're trying to convince... Andre Brower of what's going on and he's not having any of it. And it's, it's like, it doesn't care. Well, because it seems irrational that there are monsters in the mist, right? That like, that's ridiculous. And they're trying to convince him. They're like, no, come back here. There's a tentacle and blood. We can show you. And he's like, yeah, okay. Pour all the cow's blood back there that you want. Like, I'm not going back there. You guys are trying to make a fool out of me. There's this separation between the rich and successful and the poor and the townies. There always is in a king book. Yes. But there's also this separation between... Pride. Pride. Pride is a huge, huge issue in this film. Every single character exhibits pride in one way or another. I think the ultimate thing that King wants you to get out of this is that pride will be your downfall. Yeah. And that's why Ollie is the best character, because he's super humble the entire time. Even he, ne- when- he never once tries to, to throw his weight around. Even Thomas Dr- Jane does that. Yeah, but even when... Ollie is like when they when they they find out that they have one gun and who should carry it and he's like I'll do it I'm a good shot and they're like really and he's like yeah no I'm I'm pretty good I was state champion like yes he should be the one holding the gun but even when he has that under his belt and he's like I am a sharp fucking shooter here give me the gun he doesn't act like that yeah and this is why I'll ruin it for you now Ollie fucking dies at the end and it's uh-huh. fucking bullshit uh-huh. you've been telling me this entire movie pride will be your downfall and the one character who never has pride dies you're right you're right but I think the point of this movie is that I mean, aside from the fact that Carol gets to fucking live, (laughs) is that there is no right way to survive this. Everyone dies. So what's the point? You know who doesn't die? Thomas Jane and everyone who stayed in the the grocery store. Who didn't die inside the grocery store. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) They all get to live. So let's let's kind of burn through the plot here because there's a lot of things that happen. Let's get through it. So... Andre Brower decides to get a group of people to leave and And there's there's another great moment where this guy turns to Mrs. Carmody as he's walking out because he doesn't want to leave. Everybody else that's going out with this dude wants to leave. He's like, no, I'm going out there to get supplies and then I'm coming back to help everyone in here. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Carmody says, you're all going to die out there. And he goes, you know what, lady? I believe in God, too. But I don't think he's the uh, sacrificial asshole that you think he is. Right, the Old Testament. Hey, crazy lady, I believe in God, too. I just don't think he's the bloodthirsty asshole you make him out to be. 
And then he dies immediately after that. Mm-hmm. And like, I get- This isn't God though, is the point. I get that. I get what you're saying. It's like, no, these are just animals and you can't control animals. I understand that. But then at that point, why have good characters? Why have bad characters? You can die. You cannot die. Who cares? Well, that's the point. Doesn't matter. That's no. the point. You have good characters and you have bad characters and you kill them equally because being good or being bad, the only thing being good will get you is cooperation, but being bad can get you cooperation too. It's That's not what this movie is about. So life just doesn't matter. Do what you fucking want. No, just shit happens to good people and bad people. Shit happens. You can make the best decision at the time and still be wrong. Guess what? I don't need a movie to tell me that. Most movies don't. Most movies will be out here telling you that, you know, you you be a good person and good things will happen to you. And that's fucking bullshit. It's not true. And you can make the best decision you can possibly make at, at any given point and it not be the right one. And the worst decision you could possibly make, the least rational one, is the one that ends up saving you. That's just fucking life. And we don't talk about that very much. We talk a lot about karma stuff. You know, we don't explicitly say karma, but, you know, even though you be a good person and God will reward you if you want to turn it religious like that. There's not a lot of media out there that says, no, life is just fucked sometimes. I totally agree. And in fact, I just had this conversation with a group of girls, my friends. They were all talking about, don't worry, karma will get her, karma will get her. And I'm just sitting there like, I'm not saying anything. And they all kind of look at me and I'm like, I don't believe in karma. I hope something bad happens. I don't believe in karma. Right. She could have a great life for the rest of her life. Right. She could have a better life than any of us. Who fucking knows? Right. And (laughs) and it's not going to have any, you know, us sitting back and crossing our fingers and hoping it's going to happen isn't going to change anything. Anyway. I bet you know what conversation I'm I know exactly what conversation (laughs) I'm So anyway, they tie a rope around his waist and he goes out there. And they're screaming, the the rope gets taut, and then it comes back, and it's covered in blood. And as the rope gets closer and closer to the front door, they realize it's tied around the waist of just legs. There is no torso. The torso's missing. And they're, everyone's, like, freaking out. And this is the first, like, real confirmation for everyone involved that there are monsters out there. But what we do not get to see is what happened to Andre Brower and his group, and we never find out. Isn't that the group that gets taken by the spiders? No. That's a thing that people get confused a lot, apparently. The one who gets taken by the spiders is the MP. I've I've read that in other places where people are confused. It's the MP who is actually the one who gets taken by the spiders later. Kelsey had to keep her eyes closed for the spider scene, and I had to explain what was going on. Because <laughs> that's not her scene. <laughs> I mean, like, I saw them. Right. And it's bad CG. I just, I... I don't think it's bad. I don't like, no. It's creepy crawly things, and yeah, no, it's not okay. And it gets really bad. There's a great moment in there, too. But so anyway, we never actually end up seeing what happens to him. We know that the MP who comes in and tells the three military guys that, hey, pack up your shit, you're coming with me in 30 minutes or whatever. I'm gonna go to the pharmacy and see if there's anyone else in there or whatever. He says he's going to the pharmacy and we find him later in the pharmacy and they kick a hat, a helmet that says MP, which is the helmet that he was wearing earlier. And then he talks about how it's our fault. It's our fault because the military. So anyway, 
we never actually find out what happens to them, and I th- I find that interesting. We can assume they're dead, but we don't know for sure. I would assume so. Yeah. So then nighttime happens, and we get that awesome moment where the bugs start showing up. This guy, they, so they set up all this dog food and stuff along the window to help it stay up, and then they tape it as well. And this guy is, like, holding up a lighter to see his food. Are you okay? I'm just about to tell you how stupid and bad this moment is. And how infuriatingly stupid this moment is. You can see like what looks like a fly flying around and then it slams against the window and you realize that that was actually not a fly. It was a giant bug, but it was so far away. And it's this kind of jump scare that's actually really fucking effective. They do the thing in this movie where a lot of the movie has no non-diegetic sound. I actually mentioned that. I I wrote... I wrote a couple times, What's the, what the fuck is with the sound? The sound is very strange in this No, movie. I love it. <laughs> I said I love the silence, even when it doesn't make any sense. There's it, moments when I'm it doesn't saying. make any there sense. There are parts where I'm like, what is happening? When the bag boy dies, but before they turn the generator off, you can't hear the generator anymore. It's weird. Well, it's because they want you focusing on the moment. But it's weird. When they're watching the rope tied to the biker... There's a moment towards the end when everyone just stares at Thomas Jane when the car runs out of gas and there's just no sound. It is off-putting because it comes out of nowhere. I think it's supposed to be, though. I think it's it's it, it, it lends to that sort of patience where you can just rely on the moment to carry itself and not the music to force the audience to feel a certain That thing. is fine, but, like, it gets literally silent. And it's like, in this moment, this would not be silent. And if you want to make it artistic you need to make that more clear okay the original version that frank darabont wanted to do but wasn't allowed to do was release this in black and white they didn't let him do that though so if you get the blu-ray there's a black and white version that you can watch which i think i'd be interested i'm kind of bummed that we didn't watch the black and white version there is that sort of silent moment do which is what oh with the fire with the lights Oh, well, that's because William Sadler's an idiot. Anyone who's ever had a light on at night yeah. has seen a bug be attracted to it. Uh-huh. We make that joke in kids' movies. Uh-huh. Don't go towards the light. If you live in New England, you have a lot more bugs than I do. Yeah. You have specific lights you put on your porch to zap these right. bugs. But what he's what These he's are doing, giant bugs. Yes, but we know You have lights on. Precedent has oh been set, my Kelsey. Good. Precedent has been set that William Sadler specifically is a fucking moron. He cannot put two and two together but and he panics. But it's it's not just him. They're all holding lights up like, look at those bugs. They're so big. They don't know that they're bugs. It's incredibly obvious. Look to at us. Them. To us. But when you're in the fucking moment, you don't know what this giant thing is that flies. Birds aren't attracted to light. They fly. They flap around. They've got bug. bug. And how do they see that? Because they shine a light on it. That's how they find out. It's dark. It's night. There's mist. They can't see this shit until they shine a light on it. And then they realize what the light's doing and they try to shut all the lights off. But William Sadler, who's a fucking idiot, keeps turning the lights on. And that's caught. That's exacerbating the problem. Anyway. So there's chaos in there. They end up lighting mops on fire and shit. Which doesn't really work. 
I mean, it kind of does, but it causes more damage. In fact, it totally fucks this one guy up and gives him these really severe burns. There are these sort of pterodactyl-type creatures that show up to eat the bugs, and that's why the glass breaks and they're able to get in. Toby Jones has the gun, and he shoots one of them. There's one of them that is standing, uh, and he shoots it in the leg, because it's moving around so much. So he gets it in the leg and it kind of hobbles away down an aisle and he's trying to follow it. And when he gets back to it, it's standing between him and Thomas Jane's son. And he hesitates. And Thomas Jane sees it and grabs his son out of the way just in time for Toby Jones to be able to fire and shoot the thing in the head and kill it. So that's really cool. Toby Jones gets his awesome moment and he does exactly the right thing. But everything eventually calms down. But this all still fulfills Miss Carmody's prophecies. In this moment, that's when one of them lands on her and she says, your will, do what you will. And it's because she doesn't, you know, swat at it that it doesn't hit, hurt her because it's a fucking animal. And what does she it's a say? bug and that's how bugs act. What does she say, Kelsey? She just says, God's will no. be done. Nope. She says, my life for you. Oh, that's right. Oh. <sighs> my life. <sighs> My life for you. Your will be done. My life for you! Which is trash can, man. That's what he says in the stand. I love trash can, man. My life for you! Trash can man is one of my favorite villains because it's like he's just... He's not villainous. He's mentally disabled. And he thinks he's doing what he should be doing. And yeah, no, he's, he's not like trying to hurt anybody. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. It's like they don't understand. I don't mind if they don't understand. This woman fully understands. But it's not like she's a fun villain either. She's not Kathy Bates from Misery, uh-huh. you know? Like it's not, she's just this annoying bitch. And at one point she's like given a speech and she goes to touch a kid's face and I'm sitting there like, dude, if you came near my child, I'd fucking punch the shit right. out of you. Do not touch my child. I did not give you permission to do so. <laughs> the group is getting split into two very obvious factions, and Thomas Jane's faction is getting smaller and smaller. They decide they need to go to the pharmacy for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is to get something for the man who's going to die of these burns. So they decide to go, and there's a big confrontation as to whether or not they're allowed out or not, but they end up going out. And it's it's a big group of people, including Thomas Jane and Ollie and the older woman who's there, and she's really awesome. Her name is Irene, played by Francis Sternhagen, and Sam Witwer's character, Private Jessup, because in the attack of bugs, his uh, sweetheart ends up getting stung and dying. So he's like basically suicidal at this point. And he's like, fine, I'll go. Even though, by the way, up until this day, they'd only flirted from across the room. Right, yeah, uh-huh. And then, like, he kissed her in the back room at one point. Well, they make a point about how all this happens in, like, two days. Yes. so That's all it takes. He kissed her once, and then she's like, I just thought it would be better than this inside a storeroom, and then she dies. And it's like... And he's devastated. And he acts like she was the love of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So they go to the pharmacy and the pharmacy is an awesome scene. It's the spider scene. At first, they don't see anything. 
But then they see all these like webs and stuff like that. And they find as they're getting all the medicine. So they're trying to get the medicine. They find the MP all cocooned up and he's still able to talk. He says, oh, it's our fault. It's our fault. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Help me. And then all these spiders start coming out and they have this acidic web that they shoot out at people. And so they need to dodge the web and they need to kill these spiders. There's one moment where somebody where the spider's about to strike and Irene holds up a can of bug spray and you're like, oh, God, but it's not she's not going to spray this giant bug with bug spray. She holds a lighter up to it and then sprays it and burns the fuck out of the spider. And it's really fucking awesome. And it's a great moment. Meanwhile, the MP's insides are struggling. It's it's like a it's like a chest burster sort of moment, but he ends up falling loose from the web and slamming on the ground. And like in the gate, when the dude falls down and he bursts into those little guys, it's almost like that, except he doesn't transform into it. They all burst out of him. And it's so fucking gruesome and so good. This is why I really like this movie, is because there's these moments like that that are just mwah, just perfect. And they need to get out of this place. And sure enough, they come running back to the supermarket, freaked out. And now they have all these spiders out there that might get at them. Who knows what's going to happen with them? Mm-hmm. And and one of the people dies that went with them. But Irene makes it back, goddammit. And so does Ollie. And so does uh, Sam Witwer and all of that. Thomas Jane passes out. He wakes up. And it's like a day later or something like that. Like he was out for a long time. The guy who had the burns died in the middle of the night. The chick who was supposed to be taking care of the kid killed herself. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And Sam Witwer goes into the back room because Thomas Jane brings up the fact that the MP said it's our fault. And he's like, what are they talking about? And he's like, well, let me, I think my, my buddies know, let me go back there and check. They've both killed themselves. He's like, I didn't think they would do it. I didn't think they would do it. I didn't think they'd do it. They said they would do it. And I just, I told them what the MP said at the pharmacy and they swore they'd do it. I just, I didn't think they would. Oh, Jesus. It's the Arrowhead Project, isn't it? This mist. It's some kind of what? Military fuck up. What were you guys messing with up there, huh? They did, obviously. They felt guilty about their hand in it. But he's like, I didn't have anything to fucking do with it. I'm just in the military. (laughs) They did it. I'm just stationed here. But I've heard whispers, and this is what I've heard about. Yeah, so he gets tossed into the mob as she's giving this sermon. And it's Carmody, like, like 90% of everyone is following her. him or yeah. something. Or William Sadler does or something, and then, like, throws him in. Oh, yeah, it's in. Sadler. He's, he turns him in. Yeah. There's, like, a butcher or uh, somebody who, in all the hullabaloo, when he's getting tossed from person to person... Uh, stabs him in the stomach, and they just straight kill Sam Whitworth there. Yeah, it's a... Mob mentality is what we're seeing here. Yeah. But this is where it comes out that the government's been trying to look into other dimensions. They were trying to open a window, and they ended up opening a door. And what Carmody has been shouting about, and what she seems to be right about, is every time that there's a sacrifice, things calm down for a long time. She seems to be right about it. There's really never confirmation, unless you consider the end to be a confirmation of that. But then you're telling me that God has a hand in what's happening. Which then 
negates everything else that you've been teaching me. Because you told me at first that Carmody was wrong, that it was just animals. Then you told me Carmody was right. Then you killed Carmody. But then you told me that it was right well, I again. Think it's, it's a thing. It's because we know Stephen King has has a conflicted relationship with religion. He hates the religious, but he's accepting of religion. So funny. I actually would have thought it was the opposite. I mean to say, I, I mean, I guess you're right. <laughs> I mean to say that he doesn't like the institutions of religion, right? The super religious, the maniacally religious, the people who are judgmental and end up becoming evil by trying to be as good as they can be. Uh, he likes the individuals, right? So I see where you're coming from with that. But in any case, what I think he's pointing out here is that just because they make a prediction and it's accurate doesn't mean that their explanation of that is accurate, right? Like, Religions have been using this misunderstanding for millennia. The idea that, oh, if I can predict the growth of crops or whatever, I can say God does it. You know, if I can predict that, oh, if the animals eat, they won't be as aggressive, I can say, oh, God is telling me they're going to stop eating. You know, it's using knowledge against the ignorant as a tool to spread power and religion, right? It's a tool of power at that point. And that's what he has a problem with. But it's working. They they throw him out as a sacrifice, Sam Witwer, who's been stabbed in the gut. They throw him out and he puts his hand on the door, which is covered in blood. So now there's a bloody handprint on the window and something stabs him and takes him or bites him and takes him. I can't remember what. Sam Witwer's dead and there's been a sacrifice. And now she's predicting that more people are going to die. What ends up happening is that she goes from predicting that people are going to die to dictating that people need to die. And that's a huge problem. They decide we need to get out of here right now. This is only going to get worse. Thomas Jane's crew. And so they try to sneak out. Ollie's been collecting groceries and put them behind one of the registers. And when they go to check it out... It's not there. Because the bitch is back. Yeah. She's waiting there and watching them. And she has a little container full of milk, which is weird. Yeah. I guess that's like a purity thing. I guess. I I don't know. So now the mob is turned against our crew and there starts to be a big fight. But Carmody is like, above all else, get me that kid and get me that woman. Well, first she wants the kid, and that's mostly to get back at Thomas Jane. Then she notices that the girl that she doesn't like is holding the kid. She says, get me the whore, too. Yes. and and But she, you can see she's using prophecy She's using her power. Her own. Yeah, uh-huh. She's abusing that power that she has. And that's when she dies. Yeah, as she's commanding everyone to do everything, and, and they're getting surrounded by, again, there's that, there's that big dude with the knife who's coming at them. Ollie shoots Miss Carmody right through the milk jug. And so that bursts and then she gets hit right in the stomach. And eventually he shoots her in, in the, the head in the head when she's trying to stop them still. Uh, and they manage to get out. And as they're getting out, Ollie says to Thomas Jane, I, I, I killed her. And Thomas Jane says, thank you, Ollie. I, I killed her. Thank you, Ollie. Because you, you saved my son, you yeah. know? 
thank you. And as they're getting to the exit and they're trying to get to the car, he's like, I wouldn't have shot her, Dave, not if there had been any other way. And Thomas Jane's like, that's why I said thank you. <laughs> I wouldn't have shot her, Dave. Not if there'd been any other way. That's why I said thank you. Okay. This is kind of a great moment. But then Ollie dies. Yeah, Ollie does die here. Which just, fuck this movie. Yeah. Again, it's, being good isn't going to save you. So all these people watch. Uh, one of the guys, the the manager of the store, who at first was just kind of a dick to Ollie, but ended up joining their team, he ends up getting left behind and having to run back into the store. And he has to watch them as they drive past. And there's this moment of silence as they drive past and he's just watching them. I love, I think these silences used very effectively in this movie. And now they're driving around trying to get to the other side of the mist. They stop by Thomas Jane's house and they see- Which was open to the elements. Yeah. So that, of course the mother's dead. Mm, the only people in the car right now are Thomas Jane and his son, Lori Holden, Amanda, Jeffrey DeMunn, who plays Dan, the first guy to encounter the thing in the mist, and Francis Sternhagen. Irene, the old lady. They're the only ones left. And so now they're just going to drive and drive and drive. And one of the things that happens to them is they see, like, the behemoth, which is this giant beast. And it's very Lovecraftian with tentacles and all this stuff. And it's kind of cool looking. But eventually they run out of gas. And there's another silent moment where they're all like... Now what? There's a moment earlier on when Thomas Jane's son says, don't let them get to me. Don't let the monsters get me. Whatever happens, don't let the monsters get me. So now he has that on his mind. And then he's looking at the gun, and there's four bullets left. And there's five of them. Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> you know? Like, I'll kill everyone in here, and I'll have to deal with that. But it's better that you die this way than what could happen to you with the monsters and I'll take that sacrifice. And he ends up shooting all of them. But the kid wakes up right beforehand. I'm like, eh, it felt unnecessary. And it's a real fucked up ending. And and we see Thomas Jane freaking out and crying and... I love when he comes out and he's like, come on. Come on. Yeah, he, he just wants to be eaten. Just at this come. Point. Kill yes. me. Do it now. Come on! Come on! Come on! And he hears a roaring noise. What that roaring noise is are tanks and soldiers 
that are coming through with flamethrowers and burning down all the webs and all the other shit that's happening and they're taking out all these monsters and he just watches as they stroll on by wearing these gas masks. And as they clear out this area, the mist starts to recede and he can start to see everything and he's he's made it to the other side of the mist. And if he had waited just five more minutes, everyone would be alive. Supposedly, because the theory is that those without, were the sacrifices. Without those sacrifices, it wouldn't have happened. But that's bullshit because we know <laughs> that it's all just coincidence. Shit just happens. Do we? I think so. I don't think we do. I think we do know that. I don't think we ever get confirmation on that at all. Well, I think mine doesn't need confirmation. Yours does. Yours is the absolutely fabulous that there's somebody that needs to be sacrificed and somebody makes a decision to recede the fog. That's the more crazy out of left field option. So that needs confirmation. The logical one is that the military came and they're clearing out these animals. They're clearing out the nests and the fog with it, the mist with it. And there's this shitty moment when he's crying and he realizes what happens and he's like, they're dead for what? But the, like the, the music, the choir and everything is picking up, but it's like, that's a little on the nose. I didn't need that. I didn't need him asking for what I knew what happened. I understood the dramatic irony here. And apparently this really splits audiences. There are people who in early screenings would comment, you know, because they ask you for your comments that like that ending needs to change. And then there are other people that are like, I can't believe you had the balls to do that. Do not change that ending. So it's it's very divisive. And he went with the more impactful one. What happens in the actual novella, in the Stephen King novella, is that we see them drive off into the mist. But it ends there, right? We don't know what ultimately happens to them. And Darabont's like, this is a movie. I need an ending. It's not a short story. Well, I mean, a novella is a little bit longer than a short story, but it's not a full novel. Like, I need an actual ending. Now, in the novella, Thomas Jane's character does actually have the thought that there are enough bullets for everyone but me. Worst comes to worst, I can I can take care of this. Um, but the novel doesn't ever actually have that happen. And Darabont just said, if we're going to make a horror movie based on a Stephen King story, let's take Steve's most horrible, dour, and darkest thought and follow it to its logical conclusion. That's what he does. And it's fucked. But it's what makes this movie famous. It's why people know this movie. is because of its ending. I kind of love it. What do you what do you feel about the ending? I feel like it's shocking and I guess For shocking sake. I guess maybe? that's good. I don't know. You'd I, already I, checked out by that point, do you think? I, I guess, but like I, I I thought it was interesting. Like you said, like I'm like, oh I can't believe they actually did that. That's interesting. But like I don't like at that point I think I'm in such a bad mood that like it's <laughs> like I don't I don't really care that these people died anymore. Like because I had seen this before. Yeah. So had I. So. It's been a long time. I think I hadn't seen it since. It's been like 11 years, I think, since I've seen it. And of course, I knew the ending and everybody knows the ending. It's just like, okay. I don't know. Yep. I just kind of accept it. Like when I saw the ending of Children of the Corn, the remake. Uh-huh. And found out that's how he ended the original story. I was like, whoa. Yeah. 
Because that doesn't, that's not a very king thing to do. Mm -hmm. You know, even Carrie, that ends with Carrie dying, it ends with also, you find out at the very, very end of the story that Carrie had like a cousin or, you know, like she had an aunt who had kids and like one of her kids is starting to just show these things. And and unlike Carrie's mother, she's like, that sounds, this this could be exciting. Maybe my kid has cool powers, yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's like most King works kind of have a hopeful ending. And you could argue that about the original missed ending where it's like, yeah, he has that thought, but we don't know what happens. Yeah. So it kind of has that hopeful ending. Whereas like Children of the Corn, it's just like, oh, fuck no. <laughs> they both are just dead. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it's like, I understand it. I think it f falls into, into line with the King universe. So I'm yeah. okay with that. Do you have anything for lightning round? I have a few things to go over. Let's see. While you're looking for that. After having adapted two other King stories, which are decidedly not horror, they're very dramatic. Frank Darabont says that this movie, his first horror adaptation, is the happiest moment of his career because he scared Stephen King. Stephen King jumped at one moment in the movie. And then afterward told him that it terrified him apparently is like a big deal, obviously, for Darabont, who says, oh, man, I, not only did I manage to scare Stephen King with his own material, but, you know, he really liked it. Like, so Darabont obviously is very good. I think we I feel like we talked a while back about how Darabont should be the one adapting these Stephen King movies because he seems to be successful, whereas all these other people kind of fuck it up. Mm hmm. A couple of things about the scene where the kid goes out to try and undo the thing with the tentacles. Yes. So one thing that really bothered me is that when Ollie decides to close the door, that ends up practically squashing the tentacle. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no... I don't believe that. Well, it traps that. it there. Yeah. But I don't mm -hmm. believe that. Mm -hmm. I believe the thing would be stronger than that yeah. thing. So there's that. There's also an implication that that's the giant behemoth beast. Because that's the only other Which thing we see with tentacles. Which doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Because he's way up off the ground. I thought maybe it was and, like a baby one. Right. Yeah, maybe. I, I would assume it's some smaller version Which of Which I that. guess then that would make more sense that it would be weaker. Yeah. I but guess. there were a lot of tentacles. Yeah. And they rip and tear. There's a pterodactyl that tears that uh, some dude's neck out. And the fucking gore in this is great. When and when the kid ends up dying, Sattler says, "Hey, I'm sorry." Yeah, <laughs> fucking kidding. He me? apologizes a lot. Yeah, and uh, then uh, he says, "I thought it was like because he he had been making fun of him before because they weren't hearing anything, and he's uh -huh. like." I thought it was like a big bird. A big bird? <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Just what? There are a few references in this movie, like Easter eggs. At one point, we see a rack of books, and all the books are Stephen King books. Uh, there's also a point that involved comic books in the pharmacy. Thomas Jane grabs some comic books for his kid. One of the ideas was that he was going to grab a copy of The Punisher. And Thomas Jane said no. He didn't want to grab The Punisher. Because Thomas Jane was The Punisher. Hmm. One of The Punishers. In the second worst Punisher movie. 
So he said no, and instead he grabs an issue of Hellboy. Hellboy is played by Ron Perlman, or at least previously was, and apparently Ron Perlman and Thomas Jane are friends. But they didn't, like, as far as I know, they didn't become friends until after this movie when Jane directed something Perlman was in called Dark Country. So I don't know if it's actually an Easter egg or not, but it's just a fun coincidence, at least. I like that when they, after they see the tentacles, they all come out and they just start drinking. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then the, the boss is like, what the fuck? Ollie, really? Yeah. Drinking? I'm going to write you up. And then Ollie's like, do whatever the fuck you want. So they, <laughs> they convince him to come down and see the tentacle. And the tentacle ends up moving when he gets down there. Yeah. And when he comes back up, because he's one of the people who was like, this is not real. You're right. all liars. When he goes back up, he goes... It appears we may have a problem of some magnitude. Yeah, it's pretty great. (laughs) It appears we may have a problem of some magnitude here. I want to give some credit for design here. Bernie Wrightson is the guy who designed a lot of the creatures, including the uh, behemoth at the end. And uh, Drew Struzan, who's an artist who's probably most famous for doing... He does actual movie posters, so he's basically Thomas Jane. He did a lot of movie posters for Star Wars and Indiana Jones and Harry Potter. He is the one who did that poster for the thing that we see in the beginning of this one. He also did Blade Runner. So he does a lot of those really artistic painting-like movie posters that are really cool. And so every poster we see in this is done by him. I figure we give him credit for that. When the tough guy is going out, the one who said, look, lady, I believe in God too, but I don't think he's an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> When he's going out there, somebody says you should bring a you should bring a weapon or whatever, and Ollie hand, like has this goes little to hand knife, him the little knife, and he takes out this big knife. He's and it's got like, a big Bowie knife. That's not a knife. <laughs> this is a knife. <laughs> Perfect. That's exactly what that's like. I think this is fun as a uh, lover of video games myself. The Mist original novella is the uh, inspiration for. The story of Half-Life, which is a huge video game franchise. Uh, It all starts out with one of the greatest openings of a video game ever, where you're just this scientist at this giant military facility, and they end up opening an interdimensional portal and all these monsters get out. So all of that came from the same source material that that this did. Chris had to point out to me that at one point, Thomas Jane calls his kid Big Bill. Yeah. I didn't even notice. Big Bill, which is uh, in It. Mm-hmm. I have one last thing. Are you curious where artists get their ideas from? We talked about how with the fog, it started with a trip to Stonehenge and seeing a fog bank roll in. And John Carpenter asked Deborah Hill, what do you think's in that fog? And it was just his creepy thought. This one started in a similar way where Stephen King was in a supermarket in Maine, and he realized that the entire front wall was nothing but plate glass. And he thought to himself, I wonder what would happen if, like, a bunch of insects swarmed in and hit that glass, if there was enough of them. Like, would it break the glass? Would we be fucked? Like, that's kind of what started the thought process for this movie, or this novella, I should say. That's it for me. Kelsey, what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? 72. That is exactly right. 
exactly 72. Frank Darabont's impressive camera work and politically incisive script make The Mist a truly frightening experience. I don't think that's why the movie's good. Although his camera work is interesting, this is one of the first movies that he worked on where a lot of the camera work was actually handheld. He does a lot of really static, what they call like on legs shots where they're just like on a tripod. Uh, it has a Metacritic of 58 and a cinema score of a C. Do you think this movie is overrated or underrated? Extremely overrated. What would you give it? Be honest. Mainly because it's Stephen King, I'm going to give it 30%. Whoa. Did not enjoy it. Wow. Bored out of my mind. Could not wrap my head around what the fuck it's trying to say, because apparently it's not saying jack shit. I think it's a pretty important thing to say. Terrible CG, bad acting, weird silent moments that I know you liked that I did not understand, and really annoying characters. Just not good for me. Not a fan. I'm going to give it a 70. I gave The Shining remake a 70, and if I can give that a 70, I have to at least give this a 70. But I didn't like it as much as The Fog, which I just gave a 76. So I give it a 70. That's a huge gulf. That's going to show up at the end of the year list. Yes. Which I think we're going to do in the first episode of the new year. Okay. So we can Because last time when I did it, we had to include the movies that we were reviewing that week. And it was very awkward. So we'll wait until the next week. This is definitely going to show up on the list of, of differences between you and oh, I. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This might be this might be the biggest one. I mean, not to give anything away, but uh, even the difference between Vampire's Kiss wasn't as big as this. Interesting. All right. Well, that is this week's Weather Phenomena episode with 1980's The Fog and 2007's The Mist. Kelsey, what are we watching next week? Next week is... Half of a recommendation. We are going to be watching The Secret of Nim, which was recommended to us by Jeffrey. Jeffrey, thank you so much. Secret of Nim is my favorite animated movie of all time. I fucking love this movie. I have a cell of it, actually several cells put together, of Nicodemus holding the necklace. God, I love that. I'll share it with you guys. I absolutely love it. But the, this isn't what you might call a traditionally a horror movie. But there are some seriously dark and terrifying moments in the movie. And it's for kids. And I remember watching it for kids. So we're going to stick with that theme. What are we pairing it with, Kelsey? We are going to pair it with another kids movie that or was family not... family movie. That was not marketed as a horror film, but is definitely scary. Spirited Away. Yeah. My favorite Miyazaki film. Yeah. And no, not just because it's the only one that has an Oscar. It was my favorite before it got an Oscar, okay? And yes, I've seen a ton of Miyazaki well, there films. Is, there is a tendency for mainstream talking about movies where, like, the only anime anyone knows is is spirited away. I was actually just on Twitter and somebody posted this thing where they're they're looking up they were looking up reviews for uh, Cowboy Bebop the movie and like every single review compared it to Spirited Away. 
And it's like they're not at all even close to the same thing. But since they're both Japanese animated movies and all you know about in that field is Spirited Away, that you oh, have yeah. to make that comparison. I get this. I get this from a lot of my my friends that are big. Yeah anime fans they give me shit for it and i'm like i've seen tons of anime oh, we have tons of it we're gonna be we're gonna do perfect blue people oh yeah let it happen can't wait we fucking love perfect blue don't <laughs> worry it'll happen and we have almost almost every single miyazaki film ever made mm-hmm. uh and some non-miyazaki studio ghibli films as well like we are really big anime fans akira is one of my favorite movies of all time yes Spirited Away just happens to be his best. Like, fuck every, everybody. Like, I don't care that it won the Oscar. It happens to be his best movie. Uh-huh. So many people are going to be so mad at me for saying that. It's true. I like don't it worry. way better than Princess Mononoke. I like it way better than Ponyo. Like, uh, it's really funny that his stuff is mainstream here in America. And it's mainstream in Japan, too, but it's not like what you might see every day or every day consider anime, which he actually, Miyazaki, kind of doesn't like. He's famous for not liking like a lot of pop culture Japanese stuff. <laughs> Is it anime that he calls a mistake? Or is it manga that he calls a mistake? It's anime, and yet anime. <laughs> that's what he does? Yeah. So Okay. <laughs> we watched that, that uh, documentary, and it was very good. Anyway, next week, Secret of Nim and Spirited Away, two child-friendly family animated films that end up being absolutely terrifying. <laughs> uh, so I'm very, very excited for and, that. And guys, I'm not, I'm not going to do all the research, okay? I, I, I fully am aware that, like, Spirited Away has tons of stuff that references. I'm, don't worry, I'll grab okay, all Chris that Okay, Chris will do it. <laughs> Chris will do it, because I'm just like, no... I don't need to There's get into so much There's so stuff. much. Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. Like apparently every single character represents something in Japanese culture and I'm just like I don't have that kind of time. Don't worry baby bird, I'll feed you. Okay. <laughs> All right, guys, that is it for this episode. Until next week, you can always reach us at podcemetery.com. Follow us on Twitter at podcemetery and I cannot stress enough you should do that. Like, we post a lot of stuff to Twitter. Did you know that we went to Halloween Horror Nights, the preview night? We talked about it a lot on Twitter. Uh, and no, we didn't get the awesome free tickets because we're a horror podcast. We paid no. to get in oh, just absolutely. like everybody else. Yeah. And I post a lot of extra stuff in a thread for each episode. And I link that in the description of every episode. So if you're curious about that, you can follow that in this description here. You can email us at podcemetery at gmail.com, which I'm severely backed up on, like severely backed up on. So I apologize for anyone who's emailed us. I will seriously try, I swear. Yeah, guys, please, please, please don't feel offended if you haven't gotten a response yet. There are some of you that have sent us amazing emails. You've sent us tons of recommendations. Some of you have been waiting super patiently. One person in particular, unfortunately, your name was the same as like two other people that gave us a bunch of recommendations. And I'm really sorry, but I apparently got your names mixed up. And I thought I was giving like different ones to the different people that uh-huh, had the same and you name. Ended up doubling apparently, up on I was doubling up, and, yeah. and I'm so sorry. I'm trying to <laughs> fix that. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, we are getting to all these recommendations as fast as we can, including one for next week. So thank you very much to Jeffrey. 
Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. Before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Bolt your doors. Lock your windows. There's something in the fog. Addicted to the sacred place This ain't a dream I can't escape Smolders and fangs that are picking up bones Spirits moaning among the tombstones I don't understand my next couple of notes, but it's about the boy and the mom. And then something about stomach pounder and a Coke. Oh, he, that's what he wants to eat. What the fuck is a stomach pounder? I imagine it's a burger. Yeah, you can give me that attitude, but it better be in nice words. Yeah. It's kind of how I take it with my kids, too. <laughs> She's a big proponent of pooping. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Get regular, people. <laughs> oh. A well-crafted return to horror for genre giant. I just had fun saying it like that. Genre. Uh-huh. Genre. 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 A well-crafted return to horror for genre... Fuck. I <laughs> A well-crafted return to horror for genre giant John Carpenter. That girl is a real crowd pleaser. Kelsey, what are we watching next week? I don't know. My cousin sent me a picture of books that she has from grandma's. Uh-huh. She wants to know which ones I would like to keep. Yeah. And there's some in here that are so good, including a ghost story one called Taily Poe, which I ended up buying the book again. Yeah. Yeah, I fucking love that one. Whatever. Yeah. Life choices. 